How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one scare <laughs> uh, Do we want to go ahead and discuss how we want to pronounce his name? <laughs> I say Jodorowsky. Alejandro Jodorowsky. Because I hear Jodorowsky. I hear Jodorowsky. Oh. That's how the guy who directed the Dune uh, documentary said Yodorowski, and I hear Hodorowski I, a I lot. Assume, I assumed it was Yodorowski, but and I, but I, I think it's Jodorowski. Well, I, you hear Hodorowski a lot because his nickname when he was a kid was Hodo because he, but he grew up in a Spanish-speaking country, so the J would be pronounced like an H, but that, but it's not Makes a Spanish sense. name, so yeah. cor- correct pronunciation would not be an H. So, yeah, because it would be a Russian name, Russian Ukrainian. Yeah, so it's it's a Spanish pronunciation of a Russian name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you so, if you Google it, how to pronounce Jodorowsky, uh, it is definitely the the thing is saying Jodorowsky with okay. a J. Yeah, with a J. Okay, hard, good. Because that's J. how that's how I usually say it. But you know, if we do end up pronouncing it multiple ways that's who cares? well i mean that you could, you could even you we you could literally say obviously a condensed version of what we all just discussed but you could say hey there's a lot of different ways we've heard people pronounce pronounce it at the end of the day it's um well we're we're recording right now so we just said that so there you go uh, okay okay Jodorowsky. <laughs> there you go Jodorowsky. wait here's a video with him talking about it apparently i'm not hearing Alejandro Jodorowsky. Oh. That's know. not him saying it. That's just one of those how to pronounce videos on YouTube. But uh, they are this saying... person commented, Jodorowsky, for those who are curious, Jodorowsky is a Hispanic spelling variation of Polish language surname Chodorowski. Alejandro which... Jodorowsky. Stop it. Which is pronouncing <laughs> with H. Stop it. <laughs> Pronunciation of video is wrong because it's Google Translate's voice in English. If you change language to Hispanic, you will hear Hodorowski. But it's not a Hispanic name. And this person says Yodorovsky oh, is Jesus the original Christ. Slavic. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, here I'm saying Jodorowsky. All okay. right. There. You guys say whatever you want. Okay. That's what I'm <laughs> Oh, oh, I will, Justin. Oh, I'm sure you I'm sure you will. Let's start the show. <laughs> well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, except their last names, how to pronounce them. Uh, <laughs> but the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. And in the, in the case of this movie, you might not know what is going on, but you could still be an expert. Uh, I'm your other host, film historian, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer, comedian, Mr. Tade Davis. Astrolad fi tisimat wadini alabiantevi bi filmi 
Tova i po sokovo testovi kadri fangu zo du lo fu siji shi di yisi cheng shi da di zengwibi hi jishu Sagav han den forkurts film das til und kloven og var for flov til at speaking Klingon. It sounded It sounds like he went from like trying to do Spanish to like Russian to Chinese. I thought he was talking backwards, like the little like did sound backwards. I thought he was speaking backwards, like the little guy from Twin Peaks. Oh, oh, you didn't understand what I just said. And you wish you had something like an informative podcast to help explain it to you? Well, I have a feeling we here at Cinema Shock are going to be spending most of our new series, which is titled Alejandro Jodorowsky's Cinema of Cruelty, doing that very thing. I see where still you're, doesn't I see answer what the hell you were just doing. <laughs> I I said I said some very important things, and right. if you're able to translate it, uh, congratulations. <laughs> you get to know what I said. Well. Uh, somebody out there will do that somebody mm-hmm. out there will do it and tell me what all i got wrong i'm sure <laughs> so when we are choosing filmmakers to feature on this podcast we try to kind of balance it between cult filmmakers and more mainstream filmmakers whose films still fall into the categorization of quote-unquote genre cinema in some cases like some recent examples sam raimi and james cameron uh, a filmmaker might start in the low-budget world of exploitation filmmaking only to work their way up to becoming the directors of Hollywood blockbusters. And often that's due to a filmmaker being able to adapt and to change and sometimes to compromise. Other times it's because a filmmaker's sensibilities simply mesh well with the zeitgeist and their weird little movies end up striking a chord with the masses, kind of like the Wachowskis did with The Matrix. It sounds like Justin's about to jump into uh, Jodorowsky's Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, but there are some filmmakers who will always be on the fringe filmmakers whose style and way of viewing the world around them are so esoteric and so confrontational that there is very little chance of any of their films ever becoming like truly mainstream and in this series we're going to be discussing one such filmmaker a man whose work is difficult but can be enlightening as well it's very abrasive but can also be beautiful a man whose work was defined by the counterculture of the late 1960s and early 70s and who helped to usher in the era of the midnight movie and thereby helped to kind of define the types of movies that we now consider cult films i mean cult films we could do a whole series on the history of cult films. They've existed almost since the invention of the film medium. If you want to trace the history of cult films as we've come to define them, you could go back at least as far as Todd Browning's 1932 film Freaks, which was thought lost for many years. Hell, you could go back to Nosferatu if you wanted to, because that's a movie where, because it, Bram Stoker's estate sued the filmmaker, all copies were thought destroyed, but some got out there, they were just being traded via bootleg for years and years and years. If that's not a cult film, I don't know what is. And that was 1922. But over the decades, there have been countless cult film movements from art films to the underground films that were coming out of New York in the 50s and 60s. And we don't have time here today to go into the full history of underground cinema, but it's the growth of this movement and the films of folks like Kenneth Anger, Stan Brakhage, and Andy Warhol 
that paved the way for more mainstream counterculture films like Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, uh, Robert Downey's Putney Swope, or even Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, I say when I say the counterculture, the counterculture, as defined by Jay Hoberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum in their book Midnight Movies, was, quote, a youthful amalgam of radical politics, occult mysticism, liberated sexuality, hallucinogenic drugs, communal lifestyles, and rock and roll, which honestly sounds cool. <laughs> sounds like Gary's mom's Tuesday night. <laughs> wow. Wow. Just coming right out of the gate. Swinging. Right out of the gate. I never get to do your mom jokes. So you guys are going to give me <laughs> no, that one. We never get to do your mom jokes to you. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. You've got an unfair we, advantage. We feel bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the counterculture burned bright and burned fast. Uh, it first captured nationwide media attention during the 1967 Summer of Love, but by the end of that decade, it was already in retreat, halted by the bullets fired by the Ohio National Guardsmen at Kent State in the spring of 1970. But during its waning days, the counterculture seized onto an obscure, mystical, violent, grotesque film from a 41-year-old avant-garde filmmaker named Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, that film was El Topo, and it is widely considered the first true midnight movie, at least midnight movies as we have come to know them. And it was the beginning of a movement that also included seminal and subversive cult films such as The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Pink Flamingos, and Eraserhead. And we're going to talk about El Topo. Obviously, we're doing a Jodorowsky series. But before we talk about El Topo, we need to talk about the man who would go on to make it. And to do so, we'll first need to talk about his debut feature film because its story, I think, is integral to the creation of El Topo. So we're going to be spending the next four episodes talking about the frustrating, the infuriating, the enigmatic, the quite frankly entertaining character that is Alejandro Jodorowsky. And we'll kick things off with his 1968 film, Fondo and Lise. Había una vez, una ciudad maravillosa llamada Tar. Fondo! 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 Lise. Qué bonito es un entierro. Qué bonito es un entierro. I'm almost certain that there's someone out there that doesn't want this movie spoiled for them. To that special someone, I'd like to say, we're going to talk about many aspects of this film in great detail. Also, I see you. I hear you. I feel you. And I, too, wish this spoiler warning had reached you sooner. There's a special place in cinema heaven for both of us now, where the floors aren't sticky, the score is by John Williams, and that free large fountain drink never makes you have to pee. I'll see you there, my friend. Don't worry. I'll leave a seat open between us. That just sounds like the the end of, that sounds like something you would read on the very last episode of Cinema Shock. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out this is that. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. Wow, weird. I'm sad. I was wondering how you were going to use a quote from Fondo Elise. He this. didn't. He just made, <laughs> just made some shit up. Yep. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm channeling the spirit. Sure. Just, just make it up. Put it out there. Don't worry about text. Just put it out there. <laughs> That's a lot of words for not worrying about text, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie 
is about a couple named Fondo and Lise. They're two star-crossed lovers on their way to a place called Tar. Why Tar? Well, if you go to Tar, get wine and water, play music on a gramophone, mm-hmm. you're going to have to harvest some grapes. I could see how people would get into that. I get to pick up scorpions under white rocks. Now it's hippie. I get to know eternity and a bird that drinks one drop of water from the ocean every hundred years. But I'll also understand life that apparently I've become a cat, phoenix, an elephant, baby, an old man. I'll be alone and have company. I'll love and be loved. I'll be everywhere. Mine will be the seal of seals. I don't know if it's talking about the animal. Uh, As I approach the future, (laughs) I'll find ecstasy, the drug I assume, and it'll never abandon me. I'll get a pet falcon on my shoulder, no snow on the streets, and I'll never know loneliness. The tree sought refuge in the leaf, the house in the door, the city in the house. All of this I am taking to mean something about having a micro penis, which <laughs> was confirmed just now when he said, You can't see this and seek refuge in your hands. So. <laughs> Uh, I think you've I think you've cracked the code, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looks like uh, so so this girl gets lured into showbiz. Apparently, what's going on? She's a, she's a puppet, and then she's now she's getting bedded. She's young. Uh, they're cracking eggs. That's a bunch of abortions or something. Got dicked around by lots of uh, oh the the guys getting dicked around by lots of women. One's a man. They comfort e- each other. She just wants to be famous. I think she's worried about dying and nobody remembering her but he's dying and she keeps him going they feel trapped though they meet a crazy homeless guy in a priest uniform how many takes does he take carrying her because jesus christ Uh, (laughs) the mud with the living dead people is gross she battles with depression and they both just keep each other focusing on good stuff it seems like till he gets pissy and abusive and mean and he leaves her uh, in the mud uh they're basically uber dependent on each other that's what i'm taking from this so far he wants many children and then he's kicking the idea, a.k.a. this doll, down a road. The poker-playing Peach Biddies and the Dominatrix Bowling League drive him straight to his grave, just like his father. Then she just gets with old men until she's basically going to die, I guess. I don't know. But we're seeing her boobies, finally. He meanwhile <laughs> watches a dude try to pour snakes into a baby doll vagina that he made. I don't fucking know what's happening now. He comes back and promises to not be so abusive anymore while he holds a sheep and stares at goats, and then they go to a desert pride parade. He's super into it, so I don't know. Maybe he's struggling with his sexuality, and he's attracted to Lise and uh, as a sense of, quote, normalcy, but he keeps going back to this stuff, which he demonstrates with a drag show, drums, and the sounds of a car door that needs some WD-40. They dress Fondo as a woman here. Lise is in his clothes, He's super into role play. I think that's what they're saying now. Uh, <laughs> there's different ways to read this, but one thing's for sure. One of the queens lost her hair tied. She keeps looking for it in the background on her way out of the scene. <laughs> uh, then there's a blind guy that wants blood, and I think they got some for real. I don't know how they're doing this. The doc drinks it. Oh, it's it's like uh, the church screws you over. I see what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fondo's wandered off again. A woman wearing feather underwear takes him to meet Jennifer Coolidge, who's in an IV drip eating boiled eggs. She gives him some. (laughs) He's dealing with the death of his mother. We show this by taking a small child summer camp to watch his father die. 
sorry, did I say a summer camp? I meant a midsummer internment camp. Fondo's mother <laughs> dies in her midsummer dress, and then Fondo spits in her face. Why? Because fuck her. That's why. At least now she's back at normal street clothes, and I could bury her alive. Uh, the beauty part in this world is that every time someone dies, you get a free bird, apparently. Uh, anyway, Lise gives birth to pigs. Fondo strips her naked and chains her to a wagon, hides in a hole while a bunch of men, including Flight, Flight of the Concourse, Jermaine Clement, surround her and kiss her at Fondo's <laughs> request. Then they leave. I guess he's pimping her out. We're back to Tar. Fondo's running up that hill, but no luck, as uh, Lise points out, they're still in the same place, except not because now they're at a spaghetti dinner with the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz's family reunion. And guess what else? They're eating alligator and clear jello. Fondo wants a kiss. Lise, this is sick of his shit, so he gets a drum instead. It's the same drum they've had the whole damn movie, but now it's special, apparently. They act like it's the first time seeing it. Uh, he starts throwing dirt on her. She breaks his drum. She asks him not to kick her, so of course he does a lot. Now he's done it. She's dead. And then this guy with one leg and a horse gets her and takes her to a funeral where the cast of Les Mis can eat her clothes. But that goddamn Fondo can't let it rest. He carries her dead weight along the side of a cliff. And uh, dead weight because she's really dead. And uh, he buries her under a surfboard since surgery was always to surf. And then some snakes are on it. And they just abuse the hell out of snakes in this movie. He just throws them around constantly. Anyway, Fonda <laughs> lays there, gets covered in vines. And per the movie, when the reflection faded away in the mirror, it gave way to the word freedom. You know, like Braveheart. Anyway, it turns out Tar isn't so much a place. It's the abusive relationships you make along the way. <laughs> Well, I don't I don't know if I fully agree with some of your interpretations there, although you've got some of them, uh, I think. Uh, I think you've got the gist of it, though. It is an abusive relationship. And Tar is, I mean, you kind of acted like they were in Tar, but they never really arrive in Tar. Uh, oh, well, and the, it's, I mean, they, they're back to on their path to Tar, is I yeah, think, yeah. what I was thinking. And that in, the end part is uh, they're not eating her clothes. They're eating her flesh. They're they're essentially taking communion of her flesh at the end. Oh, uh, not even though there's no because of the budgetary restraints, obviously, there's no like uh, prosthetic gore or anything. They're just some just some fake blood. I appreciate your patience through all that. Next time, if I do this, I'll uh, I'll just grab the highlights because I was reading it again for the first time. I was like, "Wow, I really said a lot of shit here." But <laughs> I wrote well, more than I realized. Well, before we get into things, I do want to cite a couple of my sources for this, and this some of these will actually be uh, sources for the next couple of episodes as well. One of them I already mentioned. It's Midnight Movies by Jay Hoberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum. It is one of the best books on film history if you're into the history of cult films that I've ever read. Uh, it is out of print, but pretty easy to find used copies of uh, on you know eBay for a few bucks. Uh, the other one that I that I read, I'm still reading actually, but it's called The Seven Lives of Alejandro Jodorowsky. It's edited by Vincent Bernier and Nicholas Tellup. It is a series of essays about Jodorowsky, so it's not like a traditional biography although there are biographical details in a couple of the chapters but it does it, it's called the seven lives of uh alejandro jodorowsky because it it's like focuses on one chapter is about his life as a filmmaker one chapter is about his life as a comic book artist one is about his life as a novelist and one's about a, his life as a in the theater and as a musician like it, so it's, it's very it's a very interesting way to approach someone's life who is quite honestly, hard to nail down uh, in the traditional sense, like in most biographies would. 
And then the other one was an article from uh, Senses of Cinema by David Church. Uh, it was just basically a long biography uh, that was in Senses of Cinema that I found online uh, that is pretty extensive and very well written. And that's it. So those are going to be used probably for most of this series, to be honest, at least for the next two episodes after this one. Now, the films of Alejandro Jodorowsky are deeply personal. I mean, you watch them and they might seem surreal and sometimes indecipherable. I think Gary's recap uh, kind of sh showcased that, that they are indecipherable. Mm -hmm. And the imagery that they contain often originates from Jodorowsky's own life. So I think that in order to understand or at least to attempt to understand Jodorowsky's films, we first need to know about Jodorowsky's life. Now, I want to put a little disclaimer in here, a little caveat. Most of Jodorowsky's biographical details, especially those of his early years, his childhood and things like that, come from his own telling. Uh, and Jodorowsky is a notorious bullshitter. Not that he's like flat out lying. You know, he's not like intentionally like just making shit up, but he is prone to embellishment and sometimes he is prone to outright falsehoods. Uh, that's a choice that he makes. It's not, uh, it's, a, it's an artistic choice that we'll probably get into as we discuss him. But I think that Many of the stories of his life that he's told do have a basis in truth. And besides, you know what they say, print the legend. Hmm. So that's what we're going to do here. So if some of this stuff is not historically accurate, we're, you know, we're going by the history that Jodorowsky has created for himself. So with that in mind, one of the first quotes that I read by Jodorowsky when I started this series is uh, was from... It was from an interview, a very extensive and super weird interview uh, that we'll actually probably quote more in our next episode. But this was from Penthouse Magazine, 1971. One of the most extensive – Jodorowsky has done literally hundreds of interviews, uh, so it's impossible to read everything. But the one in that he, he uh, had in Penthouse Magazine when he was – not really promoting El Topo, but that the, El Topo's release and the cult was of that movie was kind of at its prime, so they brought him in there. And it's a it's a very long interview and super out there. Uh, and so this is one of the first uh, quotes that I read. I lived a very sexual childhood. We started to masturbate ourselves at four or five years all together. Mm. Yeah, so you guys ready to talk about Alejandro <laughs> Jodorowsky? This is not the weirdest thing we're going to talk about. I'm I was going to sure. say. Uh, you know, I was wondering about something, uh, you know, long and weird in a penthouse magazine, but you know, it's, it's, I'm glad Justin, uh, deep dives and really takes the time to, uh, to read, <laughs> to read the articles in penthouse magazine. Hey, I found a scan of that magazine or, or of the interview at least. And <laughs> yeah. it is. It is that interview is wild, man. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to quote it much during this episode because it does deal a lot with El Topo. Uh, but I'm still in the process of working on my El Topo notes and like just writing down things from that interview. And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to use this, but this is too wild for me not to remember. So let's just... he's, he's certainly quotable. <laughs> he, is very, he is very quotable. And that, yeah, that quote that I just read is probably not the weirdest quote you're going to hear from Jodorowsky for this series. Oh, so. Really? <laughs> You know, Todd had made a note in our notes about the print, the legend being from John Forrest, the man who shot Liberty Vance or Valance. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, I got to tell you, it's super weird that you you, met, you mentioned the print, the legend thing, and it came up in, in this thing because I've been reading some philosophy stuff. And uh, it's, it's a long story, but uh, if I can nerd out for a second, uh, they were actually referencing this quote, the print, the legend quote, but it's from a movie uh, by John Ford. 
he's a guy who did. Uh, he honestly sounds awesome. He did like Stagecoach, Great Yeah, Strats, John Ford. Searchers. John Ford would be a hell of a Cinema Shock series. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> we should honestly do him someday, but we'd have like a hundred movies to choose yeah, from. Yeah, uh, you'd, it, it'd be one that we'd have to pick and choose or something. But man, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what a uh, life. It comes from that movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which was based on a book, which is where I, I think the quote comes from. But basically, the movie, if you haven't seen it, stars Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. It's about a politician who, by the time the story is all told, has built like this whole career on a lie. And then the press finds out that decides not to run with the truth by the end, deciding essentially that this guy is still the right man for the job. So it's better that the legend of him is what's out there. Uh, not not at all connected to anything that could actually happen in real life uh, in modern times, which is why I'd be <laughs> reading stuff about it now. But anyway, that's the tangent. Uh, just to reemphasize, uh, it, it does. It gets fucky along the way uh, with, with Jodorowsky. So if you're the kind of person, I was reading Justin's notes, and even I was like, wait, that's not what I heard. And uh, so if you're the <laughs> kind of person who's a stickler for details, because maybe it's like, one and a half years of journalism in college that I took that makes me really want multiple sources for things. You can get multiple sources for things, but the details will change from source to source. So uh, it, it's difficult to pin down exactly what this dude's doing. Yeah, so we're just doing our best here to basically wade through all of the, you know, like I said, hundreds of interviews uh, from Jodorowsky and bits of information out there to try to come up with at least the what we think is the closest to the truth and a lot and... of it's dumb stuff like it's like oh he did you know, he left out at eight he left out at 11 he did this he was yeah. here at this time and it's like i don't know it's just... well we talk about a lot of times on this show how you know sometimes we'll find contradictory statements because a lot of this is based on interviews that people have given decades after the fact 30 40 years later jodorowsky's in his 90s and he's still giving interviews. Yeah. Uh, so they and so we're, we're talking about stuff that's been going on for damn near a hundred years. He is. He was born in 1929, so he is six years away from being a hundred years old, and he's still kicking, still doing stuff. Uh, so yeah, memory. When you're, I mean, he does have an incredible recall for someone his age, but eh, some details are going to get muddled along the way. I think. They just got good genes, I guess, because I was watching the commentary track for uh, Fado Elise, and he was talking about how his dad was still kicking it, whatever that was. Yeah, was I think like his father did or something. His, his father passed away in like 2011 or something, 2007, like not not that long ago. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. he was saying, "Yeah, we just." Uh, he's like, "I hadn't talked to him in forever," and he showed up, and the first thing he asked me for was to rent him some porno. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then he goes on to tell the story about how uh, he was like, I was like, Father, I haven't seen you in forever. Ever. I just want to massage you now. And so we had the whole family that was going to massage him. And it would be like me and my mother and my sister. And But he was focused more on them massaging him than me. He wouldn't let me touch him. And uh, it, was, it was a really weird like tangent that happened in the commentary. Oh boy. <laughs> so, so that's what we're dealing with on this series. Uh, just, just so everyone knows. So here's what we do know, though. Alejandro Jodorowsky was born in 1929 in a small coastal mining town in the deserts of northern Chile to Russian Jewish immigrants. So lots of hugs, understanding, and pierogies. Um, 
None of those things. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and so Alejandro's father, Jacob Jodorowsky Groisman, was his name. He was born in the Ukraine in 1901. Uh, Jacob's father had purchased the name Jodorowsky in 1909 in an attempt to escape the anti-Semitic pogroms and to avoid being drafted in the army. Uh, and then upon arriving in Chile during World War I, Jacob changed his name to Jaime. Alejandro's mother was Sarah Felicidad Perlansky Arsavi, I think is how you say her last name. Born in Argentina, Sarah was actually, the, she was the product of rape. Her mother, uh, Joshe, was raped by a Cossack during, the po during a pogrom in Russia. And then afterwards, she fled to Argentina, where she was married to a man named Moses. And then after the birth of her daughter, Joshe and Moses immigrated to Chile, where Sarah married Jaime Jodorowsky in, it was actually an arranged marriage. Yeah, I saw that uh, many of their friends and neighbors actually described the whole family as silly, funny, but but full of love. Also completely wrong. Oh, okay. All right. I'm over I don't two. think you're talking about the same guy. No? All right. <laughs> Uh, he says in the commentary, again, just to throw this in there, that his dad had worked for the circus. I th yeah, I think it, I've heard. I've you, also heard that his mother was a circus performer. I was going to say, and then he said his father met his mother in the circus. Yeah, and, uh, and that's where that all got set up. So he he describes some uh, memories of uh, which we'll get into later because if we do like Santa Sagre or whatever, yeah. apparently that that all that's all in there. But uh, he, you know, says he remembers like when the circus would come into town, like they would still know everybody that was in all the circus stuff. So yeah. he would get to hold lions and all kinds of weird. It's other weird stories. That we'll talk about. Later. <laughs> uh, Alejandro's childhood though, was a pretty unhappy one. His parents hated each other for one that never makes for a happy home. Uh, the two ran a small market called Casa Ukraina. Uh, and at one point, Jaime accused Sarah of flirting with one of their customers and, in his anger, he beat and raped his wife, and she became pregnant. So that led to the birth of Alejandro. And because of the brutal way in which he was conceived, Alejandro was hated by his mother, who told him, I cannot love you. He claims she, that he had never had any kind of, like, caress or any kind of show of affection from her. Yeah, she actually knitted that phrase, I cannot love you, on a Christmas sweater for him. <laughs> in addition to an unhappy home life, he was often ridiculed by the other children in the neighborhood. Uh, the Chilean kids would tease him. They called him milk legs because he had pale, skinny legs or just pale skin in general. I'm going to start calling Gary milk legs. And that one got uh, me for some reason just now. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. That does sound rough. Like it's, yeah, uh, fucking but... milk leg. Look at milk legs over here. <laughs> Sounds like something from that penthouse interview that, that means something else. I, I don't know, guys. I'll show uh, you my milk leg. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, they also would call him Pinocchio because of his prominent nose. And he also, in addition to just the kids, he had contempt for the British and Americans who owned mines in the region because of the way that they treated him and the Chilean people. Uh, he claims that, like, for instance, there was a beach area, like this beautiful beach area, where the Chilean people were not allowed to walk, despite it being their land, uh, despite it being their country. They were not allowed to walk there because they had the, the Americans and the British had blocked it off. It was like a beach that was exclusively for gringos. Yeah, on the back of that Christmas sweater, his mom also knitted the phrase, kick me. So, in Spanish, that was, But in yeah. Spanish. Yeah, but in Spanish. <laughs> uh, so this was a tough town to live in. It was a tough way for this kid to live. Uh, but Jodorowsky was an imaginative child. He would often find refuge in the local library where he developed a love for adventure stories and fairy tales. 
Uh, he also found a mystical portal in his wardrobe that led to a magical land called Narnia, where a lion <laughs> named Aslan taught him about filmmaking in exchange for sex. So it's not, it's <laughs> is that all also bad. from the commentary? That's also from the film's commentary. <laughs> no, it just seems like what, it would fit in this story right now. I, I mean, he know. grew up with lions, you said, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, lions and witches do feature prominently in Jodorowsky's life. I believe that, yeah. So uh, <laughs> he, he he describes his sister, Raquel, like uh, Cinderella's wicked stepsister, saying she was selfish and was like constantly scheming to get him out of the family. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and the town that they were living in, it was uh, Tok- Tokopia, Shelley, not to be confused with Topo Chico, which mm. I'm drinking right now, which is one yeah. of my favorite beverages. Although <laughs> I thank you for sliding. sponsoring Cinema Shock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I hear it's sliding out of favor right now with the cool kids because Coca-Cola owns it. And so it's all corporate now. And uh, Coca-Cola why. has owned them for many years. So if kids are just figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. Fuck them kids. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is why that there's an alcohol. Fucking kids was also in the uh, in that interview in uh, in Penthouse, right? It's in this movie, too. Uh, I was oh, going to okay. say it's, it's yeah. coming up. Yeah. 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 Yep. We're, we'll, get to, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, anyway, it's good. I digress. Uh, every Jodorowsky says everything started in Tokopia because that's where he first saw films like Flash Gordon and El Zorro mm-hmm. and, quote, other pictures. Other pictures. So in later years, when he is kind of describing his childhood, he often replaced his unhappy memories with new, like, invented memories, uh, almost as like a way of coping. I think uh, he's like, if I couldn't have a, my own happy childhood, I'll make one up for myself. Uh, in one example, he describes finding a giant stone floating in the sea. In another, he says that he was followed by a golden bee for three years. This bee just followed him everywhere he went for three years. And then once, this is my favorite one. He claimed that the other children tied him from a giant kite and allowed him to float to the sky saying, this is a direct quote from Alejandro. It was terrible. Inside the clouds, I saw a cemetery of planes from the 1914 war. And in the airplanes was the corpse of the aviators. And inside the corpse was white vampires. And when I came in close, the white vampires began to move. This was my childhood. (laughs) This fucking guy. (laughs) Uh, So this comes across as the ravings of a madman, right? Uh, And it's true that a lot of the quotes Like I said, a lot of the quotes that we're going to read from Jodorowsky uh, sound absolutely insane. But I think what's really happening here is you've got a child escaping into a world of imagination in the only way that he can. He's got a horrible home life. He doesn't have any friends. He he says this constantly when he's talking about his childhood that he has he had no friends. No, none of the other kids liked him because he was an out seen as an outsider. Despite the fact that he was born there, he looked like an outsider to them. Uh, So. He's just trying to escape into a world of imagination. Uh, Also, his father didn't allow him to have any toys. So the only play he could have is within his own mind. Uh, And as a so his father was a Marxist. And as a Marxist, he did not allow his son to explore religion or spirituality in any way. And in Jaime's mind, his father's mind, he was forcing his son to be grounded in reality to face the world head on, which he thought would make his son a man. And of course, or, or a serial killer. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the opposite happened. I mean, Alejandro has no interest in reality at all. He completely embraced his imagination, embraced spirituality. Uh, but he never really rejected the idea of suffering. In his mind, 
joy and suffering were bedfellows, and his, and he he saw life as a constant back and forth dance between the two. So, did Clive Barker actually steal the idea for Hellraiser from Jodorowsky's life? <laughs> Jeez, yeah, Perhaps. for real. <laughs> yeah, uh, brother. Early old starts to hate a lot of things, and uh, I truly believe you can see that come out in his filmmaking. Even when he's a little unsure of how to squeeze it in, he's got a lot of themes he wants to just fucking tear apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. When he was about eleven years old, Alejandro's family moved to Santiago, which is Chile's capital city, and it was there as a teenager that Jodorowsky further immersed himself in reading and in actually writing poetry. That's when he began to write, and he actually had his first poem published when he was only 16 years old. He read a lot of classic literature like The Odyssey and Don Quixote, read books by writers like Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he also fell in love with movies around this time. Uh, Gary, you mentioned Flash Gordon earlier, but he and he, he was especially fond of genre stuff. He liked Westerns. He liked classic horror films. He liked science fiction. This kind of helped him to temporarily escape his difficult home life. He also found, fell in love with the theater at a young age. Uh, so the cinema in his hometown or in, in here in Santiago where he moved, also featured live performances. They had a stage, uh, which exposed him to all sorts of acts. And one of those was a quick change artist who he was especially fond of. And he, he saw when this quick change artist came through town, he kind of, he says that he kind of realized that by seeing that, that he realized that every human can kind of decide who they want to be, uh, that it was just a matter of willpower. Like if you want to change who you are, it's just a matter of deciding that you're going to do that and going through with it. And this was a point of view that he would take with him into his creative endeavors. Uh, I should also mention that he, he says, uh, when he's talking about the movies and stuff, he says his favorite thing he saw movie-wise as a kid was uh, Le Bossu de Notre Dame, The Hunchback, with Charles Lawton. Yeah. Uh, which, based on everything else Justin's talking about, you can probably guess why. Uh, he says he saw that and he fell in love with the monster. As, as a small child, he said he would imitate the monster everywhere. He went and do all that. And then later on, as he's getting into all this stuff, uh, it was 1931's Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. Uh, again, he loved the monster. Uh, now, according to, well, one version of the story per him, this is where he knew, he says, even during this theater stuff, that he actually wanted to make movies one day. Mm -hmm. He says that he would start making all kinds of art. But for him, it was all because in his brain, uh, going back to that doing whatever you want, through sheer force of will or whatever. He said he knew that he would eventually make movies someday. And all of this was to give him more uh, arsenal, basically, for that. Yeah. He claims that he saw over 100 shows, like during his childhood, like theater stage shows. And he became especially enamored with the work of Kurt Juice, who was a German choreographer who fled his home country as the Nazis were coming to power and would end up working extensively in Chile. And it was through Juice's work, which combined classical ballet with theater, that Jodorowsky made the discovery that true art should involve both the body and the mind. Back at home, though, he continued to clash with his family. Uh, after one of many arguments, uh, which this particular one concluded with him in front of his entire family, chopping down the only tree on his family's property, uh, he was thrown out of his house. He was kicked out. And he was taken in by two sisters, uh, the Circidas, the Circida sisters. And at their house, living with them, he rubbed elbows with a lot of artists and poets in the area. And these artists that he befriended actually built him a small marionette theater 
in the sister's house. So this is when he begins creating. This is his uh, kind of initial experience with live theater. He starts giving these puppets personalities and voices. Most of these are modeled on his father and his mother and his older sister, Raquel. Uh, He would actually use the puppets to stage family conflicts, like the ones that he was actually having at home. And in the performance, he would ask his family for forgiveness as a sort of act of catharsis, something he didn't do in real life. And the creative freedom that he discovered via theater would have a lasting impact on his work going forward. And the money he saved on therapy could be used for things like film school. So, well, let's not pretend like Jodorowsky ever went to film school. I was about oh, to say, does this oh, seem oh, like he, a man? Oh, he who... didn't go to film school. <laughs> oh, Come on. Okay. All right. All right. It was also during these formative years that Alejandro became fascinated with anarchism. Uh, He would eventually attend college for two years, studying psychology and philosophy, or via some other interviews, mathematics, science, you name it. Like he, he, there's like six different majors that he mentions, depending (laughs) on the interview that you're reading. Uh, But he would eventually, regardless, he would eventually drop out of college. He never finished. Uh, He found work as a circus clown. Uh, following in the family uh, business, I guess, uh, a stage actor and a theater director. And then he later founded his own marionette company and began to develop an interest in mime. Ah, yes. The most lucrative of artistic industries, (laughs) mime. Hey, at the time. (laughs) Also, that's that's how you know you're gone. (laughs) <laughs> that's 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 just well here's the thing about Jodorowsky the though is that Jodorowsky one thing you'll discover about him is that this man does not give a fuck about making money through his art he just wants yeah. to create yeah. uh, he he is in no way interested in, in making money off of it and it's good like because he, he goes to create he goes completely everything. broke down the line so <laughs> perfect <laughs> Well, he had already had some success as an actor at this point, working in a theater troupe of a, a guy named Alejandro Flores, who was the well, uh, the most well-known Chilean actor at that time. But when Jodorowsky began to make a name for himself, Flores, wanting all the spotlight for himself, fired the young actor. And this kind of spurred another realization for Jodorowsky that realist theater held very little interest for him. This is this is not what he thought theater should be to him theater should give way to the realm of magic and dreams. In his eyes, actors simply rehearsing text and and repeating what they've read is not what theater should be. The actors, he thought, should become creators themselves, above all using their bodies, not their words, to portray emotion. And to tell you how, I guess, precocious might be the best word for it, Alejandro Jodorowsky was, he's still in his early 20s at this point. By the time he was 23 years old, he had formed his own silent theater company that he called From Fetus to Happily Crucified. I don't know if there's something lost in translation there. It's hard to tell with uh, Jodorowsky. Uh, (laughs) Could go either way. I was going to say, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) But he had 50 actors working under him in this theater troupe. And despite the small amount of success, Jodorowsky felt like at a certain point, he kind of felt like there was nothing more that he could learn in Chile. He felt like he was kind of trapped there. So he abandoned the country where he was born and where he'd spent his entire life up to this point and pursued an education in France. So he arrived in Paris in 1953, and he studied mime with Etienne de Creux before joining the troupe of Marcel Marceau, who is de Creux's most famous student and probably the most famous mime artist to ever live. I can't name another mime artist, to be honest. Uh, But over the course of the next six years... Jodorowsky would write several of Marceau's most famous routines 
and embarked on a world tour with Marceau. These guys are like uh, two peas in a pod, uh, Marceau and Jodorowsky. Uh, if I don't know how much uh, anybody knows about Marceau, but when you read about him, I don't know. As I was reading about him, I was thinking this guy is an inspiration for Art the Clown and Terrifier. And oh, I don't think that's yeah. too far off. No, no, he absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, including his, his clown makeup. What was his name? Bip or Bippo or something like that? Yeah, Bippo yeah. The clown? And uh, his miming is pretty inspired by violence anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he literally like saved children uh, escaping Nazis as part of the French resistance in World War II uh, by keeping them quiet in the theaters with the mime. Uh, one of his first mimes for uh, Crow, uh to audition was as a Nazi killer. Anyway, he's an interesting guy, and even Marcel Marceau describes being both shocked and moved by the excess of violence in the mime routines that Jodorowsky had created for him around yeah. the same time uh, he did The Cage and The Mask Maker. Uh, yeah, the you watched The Mask Maker, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I did. Af- after you actually sent me that, that link uh, to The Mask Maker, I found The Cage on the Internet Archive, on archive.org, and right. The Cage is... You know the cliche mime bit where there's somebody in a glass box? Oh, yeah. That's the cage. That's where that started. Joe Dorowski invented that for Marcel wow. Marceau. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great... Uh, I'll try to put it in the show notes if I can remember. I'll put both <laughs> of those, the, the mask maker and the cage in the show notes if I can remember to do so. Because they're both very good. The mask maker is a, a pretty incredible physical performance from Marcel Marceau. It is pretty wicked, like just the amount of like he's changing faces throughout yeah. the thing. So it's just like kinda... I know mime has become kind of a punchline over the years because you you just see the, you think of like the guys on the side of the road and tourist traps kind of thing, but the way that Marceau was doing it, like he's telling an entire story in like a seven or eight minute, you know, performance. He's telling an entire story using just his body and his face with no sound at all. And it's honestly pretty astonishing to watch. Uh, if you can get it out of your mind, all the all the cliche stuff that mime has kind of become uh, and just watch it as a performance piece, like it's it's honestly really good. Yeah, he was no slouster this time, Jodorowsky. Like he um, he also apparently worked with like uh, Maurice uh, Cheva, Chevalet. Or, Chevalet, yeah, he uh, he did. See, he um, Maurice Chevalet was a famous uh, singer, French singer, and he did uh, he directed some of his stage productions. Yeah, he was in some Broadway stuff later, and uh, like the 30s and 40s, he he was uh, real big. And yeah, uh, uh, Joe Dorowski describes like when he met him, like the guy pulls up in a limousine, like a Rolls Royce with leopard skin seats, and like he's just decked out to the nines. You know, and he yeah, he he worked with a lot of big names doing stage production during that time. I think Maurice had like the lead song on the Aristocats too. So Oh, really? Yeah. Well, upon his return to Paris, this is after he does this big world tour with Marcel Marceau, Jodorowsky directed a number of plays. He also directed his first film during this time, a 20-minute filmed mime routine called The Severed Heads, which is based loosely based on a novella by Thomas Mann. Uh, did either of you have a chance to watch this one, The Severed Heads? I think it's a special feature on the Blu-ray of, of Fando Elise, if you've got that one. I yeah, yeah. did. Yeah, I did. It. I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, it's fucked up, but fun. Uh, uh, so, I don't know. In looking at this, I kind of maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but maybe it's his maybe it's his writing that's that's hitting me wrong. I, I feel like he if he'd you know instead of because he's 
he seems to have that childlike wonderment because it was denied him mm-hmm. throughout his childhood. But I feel like if he'd gotten to New York and hooked up with somebody like Jim Henson, his career might have taken a different turn. I mean, Jim Henson did a whole bunch of weird films yeah. uh, coming up, but like, can you imagine somebody with the creative childlike mind of Jodorowsky, like working alongside Jim Henson? Yeah, but I don't think, uh, I mean, Jodorowsky does, I mean, he does actually make a, like a, a family movie down the line, but the second uh, that Kermit is throwing snakes in Miss Piggy's vagina, <laughs> like it's not going to fly. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but, and this was kind of my thought going into this series. We'll talk more about this in a bit, but I, I know that you are a big story guy. Yeah. Uh, which means that if it to me the, the what I've learned doing this series and just talking to you about movies in general is when a movie is not literal in its storytelling it, it you kind of you, you don't you tend to not to like ones that are that are less literal in their in their approach to storytelling and okay. does that is that fair to say I mean I, because yeah I think you're hitting around that's, it. that's, yeah. not, that's not like yeah. a dig at you that's just a person that's just an observation. Uh, people like what they like. Who gives a fuck, you know? But uh, Jodorowsky is not literal at all. Like his, he he doesn't. He thinks reality is boring. Uh, that the, he thinks reality is boring. So he has no intention of ever telling like a quote unquote realistic story. Uh, you know. So I I don't think it's necessarily that his writing's bad. I think it's just maybe not something that appeals to you. Although in the case of this movie, there's very little writing at all anyway, which we'll get into. Well, in a well and he's still in the <laughs> filmmaking on the severed heads. Yeah, he directed it. Yeah. And so he like, stars in it as well. I know I'm half an idiot, but I get really impressed with people like when they're doing this film and this the, it's the guys like yeah, there or the lady is taking off a head and putting on another head. It's yeah. pretty cleverly shot. Like, it's very was, cleverly shot. Yeah, yeah. It I, really I is. Like, I was yeah. watching this and I'm like, God, I I appreciate and get aggravated with all these things that like feel like they're slapping me in the face with like you're half an asshole if you can't <laughs> fucking make a movie. Like, yeah. these guys aren't there's no budget on this no I mean, the yeah set, they're the very well very... implicating that they're taking off heads here yeah and the set i mean the set looks like it's made out of cardboard but that was one a budgetary thing two a probably a creative thing uh, and they filmed this thing over the course of like a couple of years i think you know just kind of doing it with it and it doesn't feel like it the severed heads feels like they were doing a stage show of some sort yeah. and use that stage to film this little short film it's very fun it's very playful and it shows like a playful side of Jodorowsky that you don't get to see from him as a performer in his other films uh it's just like it's it's I wouldn't say sweet but it's it's very charming I think they I'm sorry because you I I don't want to gloss over this they filmed severed heads over a few years yeah like a like a year like two years or something like that really yeah just because it was um a matter of them having to do it when they could and when they had the funds to do it uh yeah yeah okay that's wild i mean because it's it's only like 20 minutes it's about 20 minutes long yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) but yeah i mean that make that makes sense but they're also shooting on film which is expensive they're shooting on color film in this case which is yeah that's what that's something i was surprised at yeah, was this is like nineteen. 
this is like late fifties or so, early, or late fifties, early sixties. I yeah, can't I think remember it was the exact the 50s, time. And it's, yeah, yeah. It but great. it's 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 yeah, and it does have some things in it. The severed heads does that. At first, you're watching it and you're like, "Ah, oh, this doesn't feel that much like a Jodorowsky movie," from what I know of them. But it kind of does because it's got this whole thing with uh, physicality, with with the body, with the human body. I mean, th- that's the whole concept is changing who you are. Uh, that goes back to the, uh, the the quick change artist from when he was a kid, you know, being able to, in the case of the severed heads, they can literally take their head off uh, to become somebody else. And also like a couple of the characters, like there's this one lady in it who's like kind of a little heavy set lady. She's like a uh, kind of dressed like a, like a prostitute. Um, and she feels very much like a character from a later Jodorowsky movie. So you do kind of see the seeds of what he's going to do later, even though this is a much more like jolly, almost little film than yeah. what, what you're used to from him. Yeah, I, I would say, too, that like uh, just the, just the theme of it's, it's about a guy who's changing his head to try to impress this woman, uh, right. essentially. And it seems like and i don't know jodorowsky but at least in fondo at least like he it definitely is going to get it he he very much has this thing about how reality or the real world is trying to shape who you are and it's trying to change who you are and you, you you're you're obsessed with like doing something different or letting this thing dictate who you become and that yeah, sort of stuff absolutely so back to our uh back to where we are in jodorowsky's life right here so after this, Jodorowsky was actually invited by Marcel Marceau to travel with him uh, on another tour, this time to Mexico. Jodorowsky accepted. And when they got to Mexico, like he fell in love with Mexico. And he remained there after Marceau had left. After the tour was done, Marcel Marceau goes off to uh, go back, back back to France, and Jodorowsky stays in Mexico. And in Mexico, he founded an avant-garde theater where he would eventually direct over 100 plays, including a lot of these avant-garde and surrealist plays that were very controversial at the time, written by playwrights like Fernando Arabal, Arthur Adamov, and August Strindberg, who were members of the so-called Theater of the Absurd. While some of these works were staged at the National Theater, a lot of them were performed in the Mexican countryside for the lower classes. like in an actual space or was it like (laughs) no just like impromptu like pop-up theater in their bathroom (laughs) that's fine (laughs) uh no i i will say uh if you watch like tons of interviews just hearing jodorowsky talk about art is just fascinating like it really is it's yeah he's just he's obviously in love with like Mm -hmm. all of it i mean he talks about it during all this you know just like dipping into anything he could uh, he was like painting, drawing, writing his own novels, trying to film stage plays. You know, he was uh, I don't know when he had time to get any household chores done, um, <laughs> which, by the way, this is a true story. Have you ever imagined Alejandro Jodorowsky doing the dishes? Oh, I can't, no, I can't. Incidentally, say I have literally this morning I woke up from a dream about him washing dishes and drinking Topo Chico <laughs> He was having breakfast with Marcel Marceau, and he got pissed because Marceau kept putting tea bags in his Topo Chico bottles. And uh, <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Because what, did weird. you have Taco Bell before bed? I always have really <laughs> weird dreams when I have Taco Bell before bed. I did, not, I did have nachos last night, actually. Ah, so. yeah. But <laughs> I wish I was making that up because even describing that dream makes me feel like a pretentious prick. Then that feels like something like Fraser Crane would have dreamt of. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you need to talk to a Fraser Crane about 
because of this damn podcast i I, that's a thing that's happened to me that's it we figured it out Dorowski has broken gary (laughs) (laughs) this is the last episode sorry folks (laughs) so uh, i think it's time for another Dorowski quote uh so this one he says i'm an artist you understand for me a picture is like art when you make art this is not coming from an intellectual place. It is coming from the deep side of your unconscious, your soul. So I think that's what's happening with you there, Gary. Yeah. This, this, is, I mean, this is your unconscious creating art uh, yeah. that maybe you need to find an outlet for. I need, to, I guess film, I need to film Jodorowsky doing <laughs> Jodorowsky dishes. doing dishes. Yep. <laughs> please, um, please let me play Marcel Marceau. Yeah. <laughs> So Jodorowsky spent the late 1950s, early 1960s, traveling back and forth from Mexico to Paris. And while in Paris, he met a guy named André Breton. Breton was a French writer and poet who was the co-founder of the Surrealist movement. Surrealism rose to prominence in Europe in the aftermath of World War One. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with surrealism, this is, I'm sure you've heard the word, but uh, it, it's kind of, I feel like the meaning of what surrealism is has changed over the years or what, or people's perception of what surrealism is has changed over the years. Uh, but this was basically a cultural movement in which artists depicted unnerving, illogical scenes and developed techniques to allow the unconscious mind to express itself. According to Breton's uh, Surrealist Manifesto, the movement's aim was to, quote, resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dream and reality into an absolute reality, a super reality, super reality being changed into surreality. Well, I mean, that seems, I, again, I, yeah, I, I approach these things very literally. Um, and uh, I think because I come from a, I think I, because I come from a place of, the the idea of like genius and simplicity just tell us the story just tell us just tell us how you want so when you're trying and that's a pretty high concept to re- again to quote resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dream and reality into an absolute super reality so you know considering things like jodorowsky's education and techniques that he's learned or i mean if it's all experimental you know, maybe dropping out of school wasn't the best idea, but you know, the idea of like trying to, trying to take the dreams, the subconscious, which as Gary, as we just saw into Gary's brain a few minutes ago, you know, <laughs> it can, it can be a little bit wild and then trying to turn it into something absolute with a minimal budget and technology of the day. That is a tall, tall order. And I, I, I mean, it's, I, in terms of this film, I, you know, a question how successful that was. Well, well, we'll get into that. Tom. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so Jodorowsky at, at the time, he did consider himself a surrealist uh, and he was for a time closely associated with Breton. They worked together, but by this time, Breton was older at this point and surrealism had become more widely accepted and more mainstream and he'd found that Breton had become more conservative in his old age, and he lacked the fire that he had had when he'd helped to found the Surrealist movement. And Jodorowsky had hoped to create something that felt as shocking and dangerous as Surrealism had felt during its heyday. So in 1962, along with Fernando Arabal, uh, who we mentioned before, and artist-writer Roland Topor, Jodorowsky founded the Panic Movement. 
This was an art collective that was formed in response to surrealism becoming mainstream, and their their performance art pieces were specifically designed to be shocking and confrontational. The movement was named after the god Pan, uh, which means totality. The name Pan means totality. And the concept of a panic artist was meant, uh, it also meant someone whose artistic output traversed many different media. Uh, artists like Jean Cocteau, Leonardo da Vinci, and Pierre Paolo Pasolini were its inspiration. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, you know, Cocteau was an, an artist who was also a filmmaker. I'm sure you're familiar with Leonardo uh, da Vinci, but he, uh, he uh, was a, a painter, uh, an inventor. You know, he did all, he, he wasn't just one thing. That's what it means by, you know, pan totality. Pasolini was the same way. He was a, a poet, he was a filmmaker, he was a, a, an activist. Leonardo da Vinci was in Titanic, right? Yeah, that's the that's the guy who uh, okay. who dies at the end. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Just wanted to make sure. So during the years of the Panic movement, its founders were incredibly prolific. Uh, Arabal produced some of his best plays, some of the best plays of his entire career during this time period. Uh, Tapora wrote a novel called The Tenant, which became the basis of a film uh, directed by Roman Polanski that was released in 1976. As for Jodorowsky, he wrote three books and began a popular comic strip called Panic Fables. Uh, he also directed a four-hour performance piece known as Sacramental Melodrama, which was staged in May 1965 at the Paris Festival of Free Expression. This piece starred Jodorowsky, who is dressed – I'm going to describe a little bit of this four-hour thing. Uh, Jodorowsky is the star. He's dressed in motorcycle leather, and it featured him – uh, slitting the throat of two geese, live geese, on stage. He taped two snakes to his chest, uh, had himself stripped and whipped. Other scenes included naked women covered in honey, a crucified chicken, the staged murder of a rabbi, and castration of a rabbi, actually. Uh, a giant rubber vagina, which honestly just looks like a vagina-shaped uh, pool floaty, uh, the throwing of live turtles into the audience, and canned apricots. Now, uh, Coming soon <laughs> from Pixar. He, he <laughs> says during the commentary, it's just weird, in the scene with the peaches and stuff like that, where they're eating the peaches, mm -hmm. and the uh, and he, he says the bowling balls, with the women throwing the bowling balls in the movie. He says, uh, during that part, he's talking about, he's like, I've always been very comfortable with castration. And uh, he's like, balls, balls are everything. I think one of those quotes I read yesterday was like, uh, I don't make movies with my mind. I make movies with my balls. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this Sacramento melodrama is, uh, you, obviously you can't see the whole thing. Like I said, it's four hours long. Uh, you can find about a 15 minute collage of it on, on YouTube of filmed scenes. I don't know if the whole thing was filmed and they just cut it down to 15 minutes or I don't know what exactly is going on, but what you see is absolutely insane. Uh, it is uh, as insane as that, as that description that I, I just read seems like it would be. It is weird. Uh, it is a, it is a, what they call confer, what, what they would refer to as a happening in the late 1960s or in the, in the early 1960s, uh, a happening. It wasn't really a stage. It wasn't a play by any means. There's no plot. Uh, and it's one of those things when you watch it on film, it just seems like absolute chaos. Uh, it's one of those things I feel like you had to be there to experience the chaos, to get the full scope of it kind of thing. Because on screen, it just looks like, oh, wow, there, there's a bunch. Well, there's naked women on stage, you know, dancing around, which is cool and all. But there's a lot of like 
Like at the beginning of it, they take, bring out this big like paper mache titty, <laughs> and, they, and it gets, it's about uh, about three feet, two two and a half feet uh, around. I'm going one of those in the room I'm in right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then these dudes just start stomping on it. Like I don't I don't know what it means, uh, but it's something. <laughs> it is something. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those things like, like something. <laughs> it's one of those th- one of those. Uh, things that i feel like if you were there you would get a it would be a not a i don't know if an entertaining experience is the right word because entertainment is not the goal here but it would certainly be an experience i think although i don't like the idea of like animal cruelty on stage or anywhere else obviously yeah i mean what that's that's one was there was there a stated goal was there a stated like to convey x well, like okay so let me let, let's explain a little bit about the panic movement so okay basically what they're trying to do when they're creating stuff like this is uh Jodorowsky, he he's trying to create a theatrical spectacle that can't be repeated this is not something that you can stage one day and then do it again the next day and do it five times a week or whatever right. his idea his ideas on theater and later on film were inspired by a surrealist writer named Antonin Artaud, whose collection of manifestos called The Theater and Its Double, Jodorowsky once referred to as his Bible. So Artaud wanted to create what he called the theater of cruelty, which would abandon written texts and languages, instead basing performances on solely on visual language, what he called a, quote, bloody and inhumane spectacle. Uh, it was a, it was kind of a, a type of ritual slash, slash shock therapy that would enact and exercise the audience's repressed criminal and erotic obsessions. So this is what, basically what, what Jodorowsky is trying to do with Sacramento melodrama and uh, the other panic, uh, pieces of art that he put out is confront the audience to an extent where they just are they feel so assaulted that they essentially become a part of the art their their experience their reaction to the art is a part of the art so getting a visceral experience out of the audience is key to that so yeah okay <laughs> uh, that's, it's, it's like basically right. a summation of what we like our our like set goals when we started this podcast yeah yeah to make people look introspective and yeah you know <laughs> our our budget for geese is through the roof yeah <laughs> if only this was a video podcast and people could see all the geese we're killing yeah well that's the trick though we we don't have the heart to kill the geese that's, that's why true. we never film it and so <laughs> we both just or we all three of us now have just houses full of geese yeah, it's just covered weird. in geese and canned apricots <laughs> so in the mid to late 60s jodorowsky established himself as one of mexico's leading stage directors uh he also by some accounts um during this time amassed the largest comic book collection in the entire country all right maybe he's not such a bad guy (laughs) the comic book stuff is what's going to get todd on this jodorowsky (laughs) series uh uh, because he is a i mean because he seems to be known primarily as a filmmaker, but he is much more prolific in the world of comic book writing. But that doesn't happen for many more years after this. He does—he didn't start writing comic books until he was in his 50s. So by 1968, Jodorowsky was declaring the Mexican theater as, quote, this direct quote from him again, definitely dead, 
The only way to revive it would be for theater people to let themselves be jailed to provoke scandals as I did six years ago. And in that same interview, he was quoted as saying, I have directed many plays simply for clothing and food. While I am filming a movie in which I am totally involved, better to put your efforts into a film so that if it is censored, it can be stored in cans. It may sit for 20 years, but one day it is screened. And the movie that he's referring to, the movie that he is currently filming during that interview, was Fondo and Lease. For years, Jodorowsky had flirted with the transition from stage to film, both with The Severed Heads, that short film we, we discussed, and another short film that was released in 1965 called Endless Theater. Uh, so Severed Heads is basically little more than a filmed stage play. Like we said, it took quite a while for them to film it, but if you watch it, it's very, very much feels like a filmed stage play. Uh, Endless Theater was basically a collage of film performances by the Panic Group that functioned as part manifesto, part experimental documentary. I looked everywhere for this short film. I cannot find it. It must be lost, or at least it's not been digitized and put online anywhere, but I could not find Endless Theater to save my life. Uh, I would like to see it because I'm curious. But he did dream of shooting a work of fiction of of larger scope. Uh, however, the prospect of shooting a film for commercial theaters with all of the financial demands that would come along with such an endeavor was daunting for the budding filmmaker. And all of that changed with the tragic death of Jodorowsky's assistant, a young man named Samuel Rosenberg. So Rosenberg was a man with, he had Down syndrome, uh, Jodorowsky had met him in Chile and hired him as his secretary, basically like his assistant, uh, due to his penchant for physical otherness. Like Jodorowsky has always had a penchant for people who don't look like your like like every other person. You'll see a lot of this in his later films. He uses people with physical deformities quite a bit in his later films. When Rosenberg died in a fire, his billionaire father, Moses Rosenberg, thanked Jodorowsky for having taken his son under his wing. He was very grateful for that. And to show his gratitude, he offered to finance Jodorowsky's next show. But Jodorowsky refused. So this is at the time when he was uh, working with the Avignon Theater in Mexico that he had founded. And all of his creative endeavors there were being funded by local subsidies. So in short, he didn't need Rosenberg's money at the time. Uh, however, a few years later, Jodorowsky came to the realization that a film could be made for roughly the same amount of money as a stage play, especially if the film was based on a play that was written by one of his friends that he didn't really have to like, pay for. And so he accepted Rosenberg's money at that time, which is how he went about filming Fondo Elise. The final product would be dedicated to his to the late Samuel Rosenberg, uh, who also received a producer's credit on it, as did his father. Fondo and Lease was based on a play that was written by his old friend, Fernando Arabal. Remember, Fernando Arabal was one of the co-founders of the Panic Movement. Uh, the play, which Jodorowsky had actually previously directed on stage in Paris, uh, is about two young lovers on a journey through the desert to find the mythical city named Tar. So wanting to escape the written text, as per his theater of cruelty background, remember, that's kind of his whole goal here with this whole Panic Movement thing, is to escape the written text as you know it, you, you would traditionally stage a play or a movie. Uh, so Jodorowsky adapted and directed the film using only his memory of the stage production, uh, which he wrote down as a simple one-page script. So basically he's like, instead of writing a full screenplay, he just writes down what he can remember from when he directed the play a few years earlier, writes, and it took up a single page of paper. Jeez. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> 
I, I don't I really I really don't want to sound like I'm shitting on this guy, but I know, I know this episode is just going to come across like Todd hates Joe Doraski. But it, <laughs> when we when you look at the films that we've covered on this show so far and the the time and energy that it goes into creating or crafting a solid screenplay. It's it's hard to it's hard to hear that train of thought and think that's a good idea i don't think you should be embarrassed by having your thoughts todd i think you should just (laughs) let them rip because there are gonna be people there are gonna be people for sure that are listening to this that are not happy to be on this journey yeah yeah (laughs) but the thing is I, i think what you need to accept though is that art can be made in so many different ways and uh, Joe Dorowski is first and foremost an artist. He is a filmmaker, yes, but he is first and foremost, he is there to create art. Uh, and I don't think you should stifle the way a person chooses to approach creating their art. Uh, you know what I mean? He is not a filmmaker in like the traditional sense. Yet yeah, you won't support Truth Social with Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his art, really. <laughs> I mean, it. I, I will. I will say this: that um, this film is getting me to think, and this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but it is getting me to think and really put some energy into defining to to coming up with some clear <laughs> thoughts about how I feel about it, which I yeah. guess is kind of the point. It yeah. sounds like, yeah, it kind of is, yeah. So when he's when he was recreating the story of Fondo and Lise, Jodorowsky removed all the of the original play's secondary characters and he replaced them with a series of surreal encou- encounters that kind of hamper their journey to to to, to Tar. Uh, the movie was filmed on weekends over the course of about two years uh, at a cost of about three hundred thousand dollars, which was an amount that was largely funded by Rosenberg. Now that Justin has laid out the history of Fondo Elise. If you'd all permit me, I'd love to just give the story in the form of a direct quotation from Alejandro Jodorowsky. Because... Please do. I want you to hear (laughs) them and imagine them. And imagine how nobody else could tell a story this way. I'm not even sure it's going to make the final cut of this episode. Just because it's... It's... it's, It was just... Anyway, I'll just... Just read it. He says, this is all quote, I became a very famous name in Mexican theater. This is the history of Fondo Elise. I read the play. I loved it. So I did it for the theater. I spent a year working on that production of Fondo Elise. I like monsters. And one day, a boy with Down syndrome, a Jewish boy with a large mouth, and some kind of retarded mental condition came to see me. I was so, I wouldn't say in love, because I'm not gay. I was in love in an aesthetical way. I said to the boy, you'll be my assistant director, my chauffeur, and my driver. Everybody thought I was crazy, because this boy, he drove in a way that always put our lives in danger. When I was directing an actor, he would stand between me and the actors, and we had to push him out of the way. But his father was a very, very rich man, Moshe Rosenberg. 
He was selling jewels in Mexico. He said, you made so much for my child. I want to pay for your theater play. I said, I don't need it because when I've produced theater plays, I've always been able to find investors to raise funds. When I need your money, I'll ask you for it. Well, one day, another crazy Mexican said to me, why don't you make a picture? It's easy to do. How? It's 10 pieces. You have to make 10 pieces. Every piece is $10,000. And I said, if every piece is 10000 then it's $100,000. But I could do it if I shoot it over the weekends. So then I went to Moshe Rosenberg and I said, now I need $100,000. And he said, okay, go. And I started to make Fado Elise. This is why Fado Elise begins with the dedicated to the memory of Samuel Rosenberg. He was a monster. That's how I got the money to do Fado Elise. End quote. That is the end of the quote. So, well, I, I will say that um, when we are quoting Joe Dorowski on some of these, uh, the, the views expressed herein do not reflect the views of the cinema shot. <laughs> it's tough, man. <laughs> All right. Like... And you're also getting another first here. Like I, we, we do disclaimers uh, a couple times here You know, when something I've never heard Justin do the disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was listening to it. This was from the commentary. It's like directly yeah. him telling the story on the commentary yeah. and the opening credits. And I was like, Jesus, this guy, like, this can guy. You... I was like, can I, I was like, I kind of want to use this, but it's <laughs> it feels offensive. It is a little <laughs> offensive. He calls a, a mentally handicapped man a monster, which is uh, a horrible thing to call him. But he he doesn't. He also says that he loves monsters. He's clearly not meaning that like he, he weirdly like he means it affectionately. He, he, like, he does. He means it affectionately. Yep, he does. It's like uh, the, the world saw him as a monster, but he like you know related to him and liked him yeah. and stuff. So it's right. just. I don't know. Just interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. So in the film, starring in the roles, uh, in the, the title roles, of course, you had Sergio Kleiner as Fondo and Diana Mariscal as Lise. Uh, and Joe Dorowski actually appears himself in the film in a small but vital role of the puppeteer. So this was Sergio Kleiner's first film. Uh, he hasn't really appeared in a lot of movies uh, since Fando and Lise, but he has had a very successful career in television. If you look at his IMDb, it is all TV, mostly telenovelas uh, uh, made in, it uh, in Italy, made in Mexico. Uh, in fact, he's currently appearing in a popular one called Cabo that he, he's got a recurring role in. So yeah, he's, I was, I, was I was surprised to see like dude's still working. <laughs> he's still working. He's been working consistently since this time, but this was yeah. his first movie. Uh, yeah, just FYI, uh, Sergio Jodorowsky says he, did not want him at first or no, no, actually he said he loved him at first because he was such an actor and like, could not get out of just being like, I'm acting basically. <laughs> and he said that for him though, he was like, well, you're supposed to hate Fondo and he's supposed to seem kind of fake. So this guy works. Uh, Diana Mariscal began her showbiz career as a singer. And at the age of 14, she had a hit song called Piccolo Piccolo. Would you guys like to hear Piccolo Piccolo? I'm dying oh. to hear Piccolo Piccolo. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> 
So she was 14 when she did that song, and two years later, she was discovered by a film producer and made her feature film debut in a movie called Especialista in Chamacas. That was 1965. Uh, when she was 18 years old, she made her stage debut uh, in the theater in Fernando Arabal's stage version of Fondo and Lise. Hmm. So she actually played Lise on stage. Uh, after this movie, she made a few more films, she recorded a few more records, but she quickly tired of the spotlight and she ended up retreating to a small town south of Mexico City. She just didn't want to be in show business anymore, and she lived out the rest of her life there. Uh, unfortunately, she was actually, actually killed. She was hit by a motorcycle in 2013 and, and passed away from her injuries during that. Oh, but yeah, af but after you know the early 70s, she's not really seen very much at all. She just, I don't know what she was doing with her life, but she didn't want to be famous. Hmm. Now, one thing that you'll learn as we go through the films of Jodorowsky is that he often works with non-actors. So while we would normally give, you know, the one thing that I learned when I was doing the research on this is that as I'm doing Jodorowsky, we're not going to be able to have the same, quite the same format that we're used to having on this show, where we give a lot of detail about the cast, where we give a lot of detail, even about the filming. In a lot of cases, a lot of the stories about these movies are going to be, about the events surrounding their premiere or their creation, but not about the actual like filming itself. Like we sometimes give stories on just because the information's not there. It was not documented really. Uh, there's some documentation, but there's not a lot. So this is, these, these episodes are going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. And in the case of like the cast, normally we'd give a more detailed account here of who's who in the cast. Uh, but that's going to be kind of rare in this series. He gives oh, some in the in the commentary, like uh, just he talks about just how a lot of it were his friends and yeah. family. Um, I mean, I know, uh, but it's not like someone where I can go, well, this person was also in this and this and this, or this is what they were doing prior to this because they don't really have a history. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the little sexy black girl dominatrix that's in there with the bowling ball and the whip and all that stuff. She was like the yeah. son of a or the daughter of uh a singer and i can't remember who he said right offhand i don't think it was anybody like i had ever heard of but right uh, you know it was another artist person basically that he knew and stuff like that and the the, the women chasing uh fondo around at the beginning when he's in like that car graveyard like the one in the car is uh the mother of diana uh mariscal yeah, uh, she's she's in there. She's one of them. And one of them's his wife, Valerie, uh, the one Alejandro's who gets wife. naked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, huh. one of, it, she the one that gets naked or you see her butt because yeah. he's talking about uh, he's like, this is my wife, Valerie. She has a very good body. <laughs> there are lots of mosquitoes, though, which made it not so good. And he's like, and then the part where she like turns around, you can see her butt. He's like, the mosquitoes, they got her butt. Very good. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> he does he will going forward you'll see that he uses his family members quite a lot as, as uh actors in his movies now in this movie there is one cast member that's kind of worth mentioning who doesn't appear in the credits uh the guy who plays fondo's father which is a small role but a pretty very significant role especially thematically uh that was played by a guy named rafael corchiti Korkidi also served as the film's cinematographer, and he's actually one of the few below-the-line technicians that Jodorowsky will continue to work with because he's also going to serve as the cinematographer on El Topo and on The Holy Mountain. So this is the part of the show where normally 
I'd pass this off to Todd to see if any of the cast members happen to appear in Star Trek. But I have a feeling I know how this is going to go. Well, you know, you guys might be surprised. Uh, every now and then uh, you get somebody through the cracks. But yeah, there, you know, no, 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 there's nobody. <laughs> there's nobody in Star Trek. <laughs> that, yeah. you, just get used to saying that for the next three episodes. Yeah, let's just time. go ahead and clip it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I can tell you a little bit about the locations like that. The, uh, you know, the opening stuff uh, where they're in the rubble and all the rich people are hanging out. Uh, that is uh, an old mental asylum uh, wow. outside of town. It was uh, just it knocked down. <laughs> so they were hanging out. So if you want to get goth, uh, if you want to get more goth, there's that graveyard scene where they're on the tombs and everything. Mm-hmm. Apparently they had no permits for that and they had to shoot very quickly. Uh, it was in a little you town. Say. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he said it was in a little town in Mexico. He didn't specify which one. He said uh, because they had no ter- permits, he said they had to go quick because they would have killed them if they oh, found geez. them. He said I mean, uh, that is a great little scene, though. I mean, it's very it's one of the more playful and happy scenes in the movie. It's one of the few times that it feels like Fondo and Lise actually enjoy each other's company. <laughs> yeah, he, he talks a little bit about how, you know, for him, it was that. They're living in the sport, you know, like in the mental asylum, it's about like the rich people just they live in garbage, but they pretend they don't. They're ruining the world and the earth is terrible and all of this stuff, but they are superficial and they're acting all uppity and stuff like that. But, you know, for Fondo, at least they're uh, basically they're their true happiness will come at death basically is where he was going with some of that. And uh, so, but yeah, he said uh, it, 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 not only was it no permits, they were moving things around like the crosses and that would have been considered pretty heavy sacrilege. That's how you get ghosts. Yeah. They said, uh, yeah, they would have been ghosts because he said, yeah, if the authorities had found them, they would have just killed them. They would have just no questions asked. (laughs) Wow. Uh, The, like the cliff where they're with the priest and, uh, the pregnant woman is like they said that was like a really dangerous spot. That's an insane, yeah. an insane location. Yeah. Like when they had that wide shot. Yeah, it said it was just wet earth. It How did they get like, that pregnant lady up there? Did they make her climb up there? She's like yeah, eight months. Apparently pregnant. so. They said it was very hard finding a uh, pregnant lady in Mexico who would be willing wanted, to do that. Who, that wanted to do all that. So. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I was going to say it for the fun facts, so but that priest is actually a uh, woman an older woman really yeah and uh just dressed as a man so when they're kind of all over each other she, stuff, he did said, they put a fake beard on her yeah put a fake beard on her yeah and, i mean i uh, guess unless she was a bearded lady i guess they would have to yeah. but he beard. does do circus people so yeah uh, i was gonna say would that would that really be so shocking no, no, they dubbed the voice although i didn't confirm that a hundred percent but like she you know she was an older woman that was a dancer at a certain point or whatever but he said uh, his uh, dep- uh, depravity knew no limits, and he got away with a lesbian scene because nobody knew it was a lesbian scene. <laughs> Where she's sucking on, sucking on her booby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's but, funny. Uh, yeah, he talks about the uh, living dead people in the mud and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, I did this before Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> he did. He's like, I wanted, he was like, they were without a soul. They're inviting the other souls in to be with them. Uh, he said they were supposed to be naked, like butt naked, but uh, there was a government spy 
uh, around that day and they couldn't do it. Uh, so you're supposed to just imagine them naked, but they would have uh, <laughs> been shut down had they uh, been fully naked. He says, uh, before this movie, I had no schooling, obviously. He said, I didn't know technical names. So he says what he did was uh, the best way he learned how to shoot the movie was the cinematographer. He tied himself to him with a rubber strap. And he's like, that's my technique. Uh, he moved where I wanted to move. <laughs> so He's like, wherever I thought I should be or whether you should where you should see it from. I just drug him there. Wow. And, so, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, going back to that script thing, it being on one page, he says, uh, you know, he, he basically says, I didn't want a script. I, it was only one page. I invented a picture from my memories of the play. And he says, but I'm not ever expressing myself if I'm locking myself to something like that. And he's like, I'm, I'm doing art. I'll express myself not for many people, but just for a few people. If 300 or he's like, if 300 people show up or three people show up, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And whatever I'm feeling at the time, that's how it's going to be, basically. He was going for something like in a, a post-atomic world in uh, a lot of the later scenes. He, he found that uh, that that opening that they go into is just like supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be like Earth vagina, basically. It's like Mother <laughs> Earth, but uh, it's a mine that they yeah. found just outside of town. And, uh, and then he said at the end... Uh, he didn't have any experience with it. So what he did was he took everything over to a friend of his named Carlos Savage. Now this guy's not listed in the credits. Uh, I don't see him as the editor, but he said Carlos Savage was, was, was the edit editor of all the pictures by uh, Louis Bunel. Yeah. Uh, Bunuel, yeah. Bunuel, who's, uh, a, you know, one of the like leading surrealists. Yeah. He said he helped him out a lot. Uh, and he said he was a big fan of, uh, Bunuel and so this editor Carlos Savage helped him get everything put together. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so he said at the time he talks about too there was a ban on younger directors in Mexico that uh, you were supposed to have to go to an older director and get permission and uh, and so only weird. use union figures like in the making of a film. He said I didn't ask permission. I also didn't use the union, so this was completely illegal. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's bizarre yeah well when the film finally premiered uh the handbill that was given out at the screening claimed that quote the actors enduring a veritable via crucis were stripped naked tortured and beaten artificial blood was never used so that means that what do you, what they're saying in that handbill you know that the scene that you you talked about earlier gary where the guy takes the blood from Lise and then drinks it out of right. a little brandy snifter is actual blood. Uh, now, whether or not that's true or whether it's just Jodorowsky creating a legend around the film, who knows? But if you watch that scene, they do not cut from the time that's, that she... that's where I was getting that from. I yeah. was watching it and I was like, and I don't think they're clever enough to figure out a way around this. I feel like yeah. he's really drawing blood here because he draws the blood from her. He puts it, he squirts it into the glass and then he drinks it. And then he hands it to his, his like buddy who's with him, who like kind of licks the glass and the, and the camera never cuts away during that whole sequence. So uh, maybe <laughs> they were, and Jodorowsky talks about like in interviews that he, he drank blood once when during his time in, I think in Mexico or maybe in Chile, uh, I forget it was part of some, I don't know, some ritual he was doing or some weird thing, but he said that his complexion was very clear the next day. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the new gloop 
uh, skincare. <laughs> <rather> than... <laughs> well, the the premiere where they handed out those handbills took place at the 1968 Acapulco Film Festival, and when it screened, it was like dropping a match into a can of gasoline. See, 1968 was a year of political turmoil in Mexico. Uh, police and students had clashed all that summer in confrontations that left hundreds dead. Uh, Fando and Lisa's premiere was shortly after the Mexican army, unprovoked, had massacred a student movement in Mexico City. A massacre that uh, Jodorowsky later claimed he was present at, that he was there. Fando and Lise premiered in this tense atmosphere, and its provocative imagery caused a riot, a literal riot, to break out at the film festival, leading to the suspension of the entire festival itself. Uh, Jodorowsky even says that he was, like, his life was threatened during this the film was subsequently banned in mexico although it was later cut by about 13 minutes and re-edited for a short run in new york thanks to believe it or not canon films who knew that we would have a canon films reference in this series <laughs> uh, but when it premiered in new york it was received poorly and then dropped out of circulation entirely Alejandro Jodorowsky's Invasion USA. That's what we need. <laughs> um, no, with with that film premiere, uh, you know the riot. They had to sneak him out of the building into mm-hmm. a, a a car, and then uh, the crowd outside saw him. They started pelting everybody with rocks, and he had to like hide in the floor of the car to get taken out of there. Uh, but and there was yeah. another film director there, like this guy who was like one of the most well known film directors in Mexico, who apparently threatened to kill Jodorowsky. I'm getting to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they they did do the sellout crowds in Mexico City, but the fight, there were like fights in the audiences. It was, you know, like you said, banned by the Mexican government. Um, he was almost a deported, scandal, blah, blah, blah. He says, quote, there were, they were not used to images like that. They're used to horses and guns and charros, but not this. They wanted to lynch me. They closed the festival forever. They put me on trial. I defended myself. And and this is kind of loosely quoted, but he basically goes on to say they fi- finally he worked with the unions who agreed to help him out. And what they finally did to get him out of trouble is they say, don't say it's a picture. It's four shorts. Put a title on each one. Hmm. And so he did that. That's why you have the and- title. Yeah, Screens. and so you have the title thing, so they treat it like four shorts, and it's not like one long movie, and that got him out of trouble somehow. Huh. That he maybe it was it was a union thing, maybe that was like a loophole, yeah, of some sort, some kind of weird thing. And uh, interesting, yeah. And uh, he says he does the same thing on El Topo. There are four chapters in El Topo, and uh, he says uh, so. So the the director you're talking about is this guy Emilio Fernandez. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a famous director in Mexico. He's already well known. He swears to God this is true that he already was well known for killing people on set. Like he had already killed at least two people on set. <laughs> like he was yeah. bad. And uh, they said, watching at the premiere, he stood up and said, "I will kill Jodorowsky this night." And uh, say what you will <laughs> about James Cameron's onset behavior, but he never murdered anyone, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so apparently the thing that set him off is one of the um, the scene with the poker and uh, they're trading off the balls and stuff. Yeah. Uh, he thought that they were really just, dis- he said they, they had such in Mexico, there was this real infatuation with the white haired mother that mm-hmm. that was like imagery. They really 
respected and they thought that Jodorowsky was like just completely disrespecting the image of a mother and all of this because they had them like fighting and being poker players and drinking and like making out with this dude like sharing yeah. this dude and uh so that would for whatever reason i, I, I love those old grannies yeah they uh <laughs> that would got emilio and he wow. uh said i will kill jodorowsky this night jodorowsky ended up after he left the uh you know getting pelted by rocks actually went to a party turns out the party was organized by emilio fernandez oh no <laughs> so he's at the party uh and he sees emilio and emilio's drinking and so he heard he got wind that emilio was going to kill him and so he asked one of the servants what does he like to drink and he said uh they was told he liked whiskey he he it did every night with a bottle of whiskey and so he bought a bottle of whiskey for him and had the servant send it over and the uh, servant took it to him and said, uh, Jodorowsky sent this to you. And he said, I want to see him right now. And so Jodorowsky said he had to like suck it up. And he walked over to Emilio and he sat down and he said, this is me. You want to kill me? He said that uh, Emilio goes, Amigo, you bought me whiskey. That's <laughs> all it took. Said, That's all it took. Yeah. And that was huge. And he'd That's already it. drank one bottle and he finished mine. Jodorowsky wow. says, and then he started talking to the press that was there. And he said, in the next picture that Jodorowsky does, I want to be his assistant. Wow. And he said, this was huge. This well, was like a let's keep in piece. mind, he's two bottles of whiskey deep at this point, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, he says, life is weird. This is another quote from Jodorowsky. He says, life is weird because a little while after he died. And ah. he's like, but when I shot Santa Sangre, I needed a special kind of house and his daughter offered me his. So in a way, he did become my assistant. <laughs> Be careful what you say, because everything you say, life fulfills. I, I love that. Uh, that's good. <laughs> well, I couldn't find very many reviews from the time of its release, but I did find one from the New York Times that was published during the film's brief run there. And that review repeatedly references Federico Fellini. Many of the negative reviews of, of the, about the film at the time of its release compared it negatively to Fellini's Satyricon, which was a film that was released in the U.S. around the same time, uh, despite the fact that Fa uh, Fondo Elise was filmed and released in Mexico a full two years before Fellini's film. But they all kind of said, like, basically, Fellini did this and did it better. It was the, the extent of that. But here are a couple of choice quotes from that New York Times review. Such is the anesthetic effect of Jodorowsky's direction that each new outrage invites a yawn, each torture, beating, and non-artificial bloodletting, an acknowledgement of shocking intention, and little more. Here's another. In spite of its fantastic premises, it seems almost wholly conventional in the interpretation it asks for its images. And like most overt film fantasy, the end product is flat, literal, and unimaginative. And then finally, for all of its invocations of theater of cruelty, Fondo and Lise hardly ever scares up anything stronger than unpleasant whimsy. So they didn't like it. Uh, and I have a feeling that modern reviews are not going to be much more kind to the film. Yeah, it turns out uh, uh, whether by choice or just after seeing it, like you, you know, whatever, somebody's going to need a nap after watching Fondo and Lise. <laughs>
actually I had they didn't I, take one during the movie. I'm sorry. Uh, that's that's where I was trying to take uh, that joke, but that's uh yeah, no, that's that's it. The uh so I did find the quote I was trying to mention earlier. I had it right before the somebody needs a nap, which I thought was interesting. He says the quote was for me, movies are a kind of art and I'm going to express myself. If just three people see it, then three people see it. I'm not making a picture for a lot of people. I will be free to express myself. And uh, that is what he's going for. So yeah. with that, these are for the not three people. That, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Bill. He says, one out of 10. It's from IMDb. Worthless garbage for small-minded wannabe intellectuals. He says, I attempted to watch this trash on two separate occasions and had to stop because of extreme boredom, bordering on cardiac arrest. When I read about the riots that greeted its premiere, I figured that this movie is a bit like soccer. If you make a large number of people bored long enough, they'll begin to fight one another. Too bad the riot didn't spread to wherever the negatives are stored, so some Probably in a dumpster, I imagine. Jodorowsky, however, didn't suffer enough. The crowd should have seized him and tortured him until he was too afraid to lay hands on a movie camera ever again. But I can only dream. My thoughts about the films of Alejandro, the overrated ones, are continued and further expanded in my review of Holy Mountain. So we'll we'll look for that later, Bill. Was uh, that written by Todd Davis? or <laughs> <laughs> I, I Yeah, know. I occasionally go as... Bill, Bill, it's your pseudonym. <laughs> yep, Not a very yep. creative pseudonym, but I, it's you know it's a work in progress. Uh, here's a here's a one star. Uh, it's not surreal. It's baloney. This is GB Herod who says last summer a local arts group screened a series of rarely seen avant garde movies. This was definitely a nice thing to do, especially since the films were shown in a theatrical setting and were free. But did these guys have strange tastes? They were showing Fado Elise the week I was in town. So I dropped in. In their introductory talk, our host mentioned that the film started a riot at its premiere in the 1967 Acapulco Film Festival. I understand why. It's supposed to be an example of cinematic surrealism, but to me, it's an example of cinematic junk. It has no plot, no direction, or point. Surreal or not, do not waste your time, even if this is free. You know, it's not surreal, it's baloney is actually the new Oscar Myers catchphrase, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Hannah gave it a half star. said, well, I hated every single second of this. Not only was it the kind of nonsense, nightmare, surreal symbolism I hate so much, it also is very viscerally unpleasant. It just gross. No horror movie has given me the thought, I may never be able to eat anything again. But this did. It was one of the most disgusting and upsetting movies I've ever seen. But not in a way that was productive at all. Just in a horrific, unpleasant way that I can't wait to forget. That one makes me want to see the movie. Like, if I read that movie and I haven't seen it, I'm like, oh, I got to see this. Yeah, this sounds badass. <laughs> that sounds cool. Uh, let's see. Adam Hobbs just gave it a star and said, Jodorowsky may be the worst human being to ever attempt to make film. Wow, let's not get carried away. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's keep going. Uh, Kid says, uh, one star. Here's my opinion. Thought it's, though it's unjustified because I didn't finish the film. That is the title of the review. <laughs> As stated above, I did not finish the movie Fondo and Lease. This review is not a review, at least not of the complete product, as it's not meant to be. 
I turned the film off 30 minutes in because it is simply incoherent and devoid of anything intelligent. I've watched over 1,000 movies in my life, and I've never found a more pure example of pretentiousness. Jodorowsky uses the film medium as an excuse to flaunt his abstract philosophy, if one of intelligence could refer to it as such. It tries his hardest to insert pointless images merely to either attempt to shock us or make us, quote, think. Basically, what I saw in the first 30 minutes before I turned this off was Jodorowsky disgracing the form of surrealism. Surrealism is not the same as being vague and inexplicable, and it should not be used as an excuse to do so. Surrealism is a visual style used to enhance the story the director is trying to tell, at least in the film medium. Jodorowsky does not have a story to tell, at least not one that makes any sense. Some people no doubt disagree, but they are the kind of people who take pleasure in reading into things that aren't there in order to convince themselves that they're intelligent. If that's your thing, Fine. All power to you. God bless. It's just that garble superliciousness is not my type of thing. Again, some may choose to disregard my view as I chose to save an hour of my life by turning this shit off. And hey, maybe they're right. Maybe a minute after I turn this off, this movie becomes brilliant in all aspects of quality filmmaking. But I doubt it. I have a hard time putting any uh, stock in someone's review when they don't finish a film. And that's the second one, I think, so far, where the person has admitted to not finishing the movie. Uh, I just feel like that point, you 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 don't deserve to be able to rate it if you didn't experience the whole thing. I, I feel like that is accurate, too. I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, the uh, Jedediah says, one star, this movie is 15 minutes of narrative sprinkled into an hour of unintelligible stuff that would generally put it in a two-star category for me. Un- unintelligible is not my thing. The problem is that the 15 minutes of narrative can be summed up thusly. A man emotionally and physically abuses his paralyzed girlfriend. When she eventually protests, he kills her and then feels bad about it. Roll credits. Fuck this shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One-star crypto gloob. As you approach the future, you'll find ecstasy and it will never abandon you. A challenging black and white surreal nightmare that is grating as fuck with some messy outlandish imagery that for me goes nowhere. To put it plainly, this movie, this movie makes me hate art. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I still have a couple more here. Uh, oh. Sebastian, one star. Jodorowsky, I have finally given up on you completely. You are synonymous to pretentiousness. Jodorowsky is the equivalent of grabbing all the watercolors and mixing them until you have an unpleasant, dark blob of a painting. Jodorowsky is that classmate you had back in elementary school who used to eat crayons, spoken codes nobody understood but him and his mom, and rationalized it as him having a special gift. And all your movies are the same fucking nonsense. A potpourri of everything and nothing you can think of and leaving you as empty and annoyed each time. Having sexual scenes, poetic dialogue, and ugliness, transgressive ideas only works only work if there is some connective tissue around it. And saying it's surrealism doesn't suffice as an excuse. Surreal, surrealistic films can be among the most thought-provoking and brilliant films if done right. Jodorowsky's tacky and shapeless sex fest aren't it. The the funny thing is that multiple uh, reviews so far have brought up surrealism and this being a surrealist film when, in fact, this is a panic film. 
this is, which is something we will probably get into as we discuss it a little bit more but this was surreal this was Jodorowsky's response to being unhappy with surrealism uh he's he is you know with the panic stuff he is intentionally trying to be confrontational but and not that necessarily these people know that but i do think context matters and that's why i mean that's one thing that we we love about doing this show is providing the context uh, from the filmmaker's point of view, but these people, I mean, uh, clearly they, they're, they're, they're not aware of that and are calling it surrealist because it's weird, but surrealism doesn't just mean weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you there. And I, I, I'm actually put up, well, we'll talk about it more as we get into it, but I'm put off by some of these reviews of these people. I'm like, I'm not sure they really watch the same movie as me, but, um, I'll read one more. This is the half star. This, this person definitely needs a nap. Uh, this is Kristen Jacobson. I don't think I've ever hated a director as much as I hate Alejandro Jodorowsky. This is the most obnoxious, gross, mean-spirited, emotionally empty, thematically muddled, aimless, pointless mess I have ever encountered. And worst of all, it's fucking boring. This film is everything I hate about his work in its purest form. Artless, annoying shock value that serves no purpose other than to quickly and cheaply capture the audience's attention and to do absolutely nothing but waste their time with loud, empty, mean-spirited surrealism. Uh, he desperately wants to shock you, but all his efforts are in vain because empty shock value is the most boring ever. I went in with hopes that this might be the early Jodorowsky film I would finally like, but it's easily the worst thing he has ever done. He lost me at the pedophile gang rape, and now I have no respect left for him or his quote-unquote art. P.S. It gets a half star, because there is one scene in the film that's actually good. There's this scene where Fondo's mom turns her death into a performance art piece, it's a fun idea, and I really like the use of the wide-angle lenses in that scene. Had Jodorowsky released that scene as a short film, it might have been a 3 out of 5 short film. But instead, it's only bearable moment. It's the only bearable moment hidden deep within repugnant slog. Wow. Well, at least that's a well-written review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing. Is like Some of these, and unfortunately, some of them come from the folks who didn't finish the movie. The review is fairly coherent i think which uh, is not always the case with these re- <laughs> exactly you know we we, we get a couple of yeah. movie you know but these actually these, these folks like have something to say or they're just they're, they didn't finish the movie which yeah. kind of invalidates their argument but <laughs> yeah 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 a lot of people found the characters annoying i saw a bunch of stuff like that um there was i mean just um i don't know some people it did seem like a lot of the reviewers could tell like times he was going to criticize or sat satirize maybe uh some things like religion and government and uh all of this stuff but they just thought he had no uh coherent thought was yeah. basically the long and short of it i i don't know i i think i went in ready to just be like what the fuck is this idiot doing i think i i think i uh, primed you to go in that I, I tried to, you know, when we here's, decided here, on the series, I tried the, here's to... the quote, folks. My advice when watching the movie, make sure your phone is far away so you're not tempted to pick it up. 
you really have to let his movies kind of wash over you. Don't try to follow it like you would a traditional narrative. And also take a weed gummy or something to get the full effect. Yeah, that is a text I, I, message from I Justin stand by Bishop. It. I stand by it. <laughs> that, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, requirements to sit and whatever and that prep was. I watched this movie, and and I gave that long ass like thing in the intro. But I was I was I didn't have my phone by the way. I was jotting it down in my little uh, moleskin notebook, like I was just writing as I as I was watching. But I never felt like i didn't follow i don't think i was making some jokes in there but like i kind of felt like i understood what was happening and it felt like just performance art for you know like like how miming is telling a story you know like it just felt like there's these things all represent something it's maybe i could try to pick apart like what these things represent and sometimes i get it right sometimes i get it wrong and when watching it with the commentary by the way is great idea if you want to check it out that way because he literally explains everything he's thinking yeah like while it's going what each scene represents to him yeah he's and- very open about in, in the interpretation of his movies i i think the the interesting thing about well i mean art in general i think is always open to interpretation uh, some artists are fine explaining their work. He's very okay kind of explaining what he was thinking when he puts together these images, whereas someone like David Lynch refuses to explain his work, and he wants the audience to interpret it however they want to interpret it because it, art is all subjective. Uh, and that's the case with this film as well because you might listen to that commentary and hear what Jodorowsky's explaining, but that might not mean that that's what you got out of it. You know? Yeah. So there's stuff that like he he explains in in the commentary that like I didn't get completely like uh, and I think I mentioned this already but like at the beginning in the part that's like the mental asylum like he he goes into detail about how these are all elegant people dancing in a superficial way uh, they're in the ruins they're leaving the world in ruins they're crazy they don't realize that everything's burning around them the piano burning and that whole thing is like uh, was well, so he does it, say that it's in relation to Salvador Dali. Uh, the burning piano that was like mm-hmm. an homage to him, but, uh, but, and it's just talking about the, the world taking the innocence from you, you know. And I, I just, I loved hearing them talk about it. That you know, there's the women chasing Fondo, and like they're taking his innocence away. Uh, Lise loses her innocence in a rape that happens to her. He said, uh, uh, <laughs> you get some great quotes from it too, because he talks about the scene where he's like the puppeteer. And like she's watching the performance, he's like, uh, he says he uh, he says uh, God has a puppet and he will cut the strings and direct what's happening. I always wanted to be God in my pictures. In El Topo, <laughs> I'll say I am God. There is God, you know. The death scene, giving death. Uh, the biggest serial killer we all know is God. He's the biggest. What's a human <laughs> being? They're nothing compared to God. Wow. <laughs> and uh, he uh, so he like talks about how like. God's delivering this girl into the world and into hell, basically. And she's yeah. like betrayed and used uh, her moving the boxes. And there's a new box in there. You know, he's just talking about how like this is to mean like she can't ever find the truth and, and find an answer or anything. And just these people around her are just like basically ruining her. Mm. Uh, but yeah. And he talks about a lot about uh, the, 
the women, you know, when the women are trying to make out with him and he's blindfolded and then the guy steps in and he's like, he's struggling with his bisexuality. He's like that we all have is what he says. And that like, but, but, but it almost implied that like, at least that even this time he was dealing with like toxic masculinity, you know, like that he's, he's humiliated by having kissed this man and like no. dealing with like certain aspects he thinks he's supposed to be as a man. And then like, things keep fucking with him basically and he, huh. he doesn't know how to handle it so he lashes out in violence and there was more with the church than i realized too because i had put in my notes i remember being like wow this random bloodletting scene is like oh he hates the church okay well that's just shoved in there later uh but you know he was kind of doing with that with the pope thing talking about uh he uh he called it the decadent church uh, they push that statue. That statue is of Venus. He's like breaking sensuality, he says, and it tries to draw Fando into uh, becoming part of the church. He was like, a, uh, quote, the Pope is the vampire of life there. Kind of like the real Pope, no? He said, <laughs> once I was in Rome and I witnessed the Pope and a dove came and he was afraid of the dove shitting on his robe. So he was pushing it away. What if Christ was like that? Pushing away the dove of the sainted spirit. <laughs> wow anyway oh man this guy uh, yeah he's crazy but he talks about their relationship just like fondo breaking he's like a child in his brain like he doesn't know how to treat the sensuality or the relationship he has with lee yeah. his abuse of her is like to break her open to see what's inside like she's a toy for him you know yeah. and, mm. um, he's spiraling he describes it like dante and uh the layers of hell like he's spiraling mm. out of control um anyway it's just neat it's neat hearing him talk yeah, it's about very it. you cool can totally see it on having him kind of unpack it all yeah yeah so when we were you know planning the series uh i kind of went back and forth on what i should title it because like how do you encompass everything of uh joe dorowski into a simple like you know six word title or whatever uh with someone like sam raimi it's easy to categorize him as an entertainer. You know, we were Sam Raimi, the entertainer, because that's what he is. First and we're, foremost, we're a long way off from Sam Raimi, aren't we? <laughs> we sure are. <laughs> uh, Jodorowsky is a lot harder to pin down, harder to categorize because he does encompass so many things. You know, Sam Raimi was always fully content to be just an entertainer. I put just in quotes, because obviously we all love Sam Raimi and, and what he brings to filmmaking, but Jodorowsky first and foremost considers himself an artist. And to Jodorowsky, art has the power to change the world. It's not just there for your entertainment. Uh, he truly believes that a person can reach a higher plane of existence through art. So entertainment is never his end goal. Enlightenment is his end goal. So I eventually settled on the title Alejandro Jodorowsky's Cinema of Cruelty. This is kind of a play on the uh, Artaud's theater of cruelty, which is the seed from which Jodorowsky's film career grew. But it's also kind of got another meaning because what Jodorowsky's doing is he's making movies that are, they do seem cruel. There are cruel characters on screen. And these are films that are designed to assault what is considered socially acceptable. Uh, that was his goal. His goal was essentially to shock and horrify the audience but he wasn't interested in shock value for the sake of shock value, despite what a couple of those reviews that Gary read said. He wanted to do it in order to, in his words, unlock the doors of perception. So for, for Alejandro, beauty could be found everywhere, regardless of 
moral prejudices and social norms. It's one th- one reason I think that he has an affinity for uh, physical otherness in his films. Uh, and that's what the theater of cruelty was all about. And it's what the panic movement was all about uh, because the art itself is so confrontational. This is kind of what I went over before. Then by virtue, the audience is a complicit part of the action. Uh, their reaction to the art becomes a part of the art. So when we when we made the decision to cover Jodorowsky, I knew that more than anyone else that we've covered so far, this was going to be a filmmaker that the three of us had the least amount of reference for, uh, the, the, the least amount of experience with. Um, I was somewhat familiar with his work. I've seen a handful of his films, and I knew of his comic book work, although I had never read any. I am currently reading The End Call. Uh, but prior to the working on this series, I had not read any of his comic books. And of course, we all know about the infamous Dune debacle, whether we've seen the movie, the documentary or not. We've all heard about that. But I didn't know, know nearly enough about the man and his life and his outlook on art as I thought I did. Um, but I also knew going into the series that there'd be a very good chance that one or both of you might hate it. Uh, I told you guys that very thing. I was like, oh, you guys might be upset with me for making you spend two months on on doing this. Um, So let's start with Todd. (laughs) Okay. Was was I right? Did you hate Fondo and Lise? And are you regretting now that you agreed to co-host Cinema Shock in the first place if you'd known that it would lead to this point? Uh, I... I'm... 2023 for me has <laughs> has been, uh, you know, one of the things that I set out this year was uh, removing uh, negativity from my life. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, he- I hesitate to say I hate it, but I can't, I can't pretend that I enjoyed watching it. Um, in looking at what you've laid out here and again my hats off to you justin for diving as deep as you did gary you also did some incredible deep dives to find some stories whether or not they're true (laughs) um you know is is up for debate i suppose but this comes across to me the, the the easiest way i know how to convey my thoughts about this are you guys know Uh, I come from a martial arts background and I'll save a lot of the philosophy save for this. There is an idea that you start as a white belt, as a beginner. And when you reach black belt, you actually become a beginner again, because you've spent this time developing techniques, developing your body, developing your mind uh, to truly start learning the martial arts. Hearing what I've heard today about Jodorowsky leads me to believe that he's not necessarily a uh, surrealist or a a Renaissance uh, artist. He's a romantic. It sounds like he witnessed parts of different types of art, dance, mime. Um, poetry, all these things that we've talked about and fell in love with the 
end product, not the process. And, you know, we're all, we're all involved in making podcasts and part of this, it can be very tedious, the editing process, but it is the process where everything takes shape. And Justin, I'm sure you would agree. Every film really takes shape in the editing room. That that's not a that's not a new thing. I'm not breaking any new ground there, but it is the process, and I feel like Jodorowsky had an idea and wanted to go from idea to end result. See, I am skipping going a lot, to... skipping a lot of the process, and I think I'm... that I think that comes across. I'm going to fully disagree with that uh, because, and part of this is I'm able to disagree with that because I have uh, looked, I, I have already started researching further into the series and uh, okay. so, via so other interviews this, and things like that. This is based uh, off of this film. <laughs> for, for Joe Dorowski as a filmmaker, the process is, it's all about the process for him. Uh, the process for him, the process of making a film is an almost religious experience for Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, the, the end product is what that, that comes to, but for him, it's all about the journey. Uh, and that, that's a philo that's his philosophy in filmmaking. That's his philosophy in life and as a guru, which he has become like, it, it's all about the journey. So the filmmaking process, the process of, of making these movies is actually it is an almost spiritual journey for him. Uh, and that especially becomes apparent on El Topo, which is why I'm able to to say that, uh, you know, because I've got a little bit of uh, frame of reference that you don't you don't have yet. Uh, but I, I don't think that I, I think you're coming from that aspect because he decided not to write a screenplay for this movie. Well, and again, uh, which, I mean, there's a there's a lot of different aspects you could point to. What what is it about the end product that? you didn't enjoy it enjoys a hard word to use for this one. Cause like I said, he he's not really concerned with entertaining his audience uh, in the traditional oh, I, sense. I, I gathered that. <laughs> but, well, and, and, and Todd, you talked about, uh, I wanted to mention too, you mentioned like removing negativity. That's something I'm struggling with. And I have been since last year. Like I've just been like trying to think about things in a positive light, and especially like in all aspects of my life, I feel like in, if I use it in relation to like the, the wrestling thing, like some people hate, well, some people hate Billy Corgan. Some people hate the NWA. Like, so and there's all this stuff you got to deal with, like online, like you just see it constantly. Like you're, you're like, man, I know this guy and I know this company. And I know you're like, I now have more of an intimate knowledge of these things. And to hear people hating on them, you almost get defensive. Like you're like, right. shut the, shut the hell up. And, right. uh, and so uh, you don't know what you're talking about, but I've had to, to learn that, that, you know, or accept that you can't control how anybody reacts to things. Um, and I guess where I'm going with this is my point is, is I I've thought about this, like even from this perspective of this podcast, because I've been like, well, we're watching these movies and we got to critique these movies and, we got to think about that. And I'm like, well, who the fuck am I? You know, because now like say, say if we're just, and I'm, and I'm not trying to do this as a name dropping thing, but like, say I, I know Billy Corgan and I'm like, I know what this guy's really like. Like, I know I've talked to him. I talk to him regularly and people act like they have an idea and they just say made up shit all the time. You know, they just say things that I'm like, or this song's about blah, 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 or this thing happened because he wrote this and 
he showed up here. So that means he thinks this. And you're like, none of that is true. Like, this is not, you know, but they got their perspective based on his art and his decisions that he made on doing whatever he's doing with his career. Anyway, my point is, is that like, it makes me like get upset. Cause I'm like, you, you're not seeing the full picture. And so, but I think you have to deal with that with any kind of art. And I, I feel like I'm rambling, but my point is, is like one of the things I had to start thinking about is like, well, I'm on cinema shock and I'm going to talk about a movie. And, and I've had to like, try to adjust how I talk about something. I guess is the way I'm thinking about it. Like yeah. if I were watching like a certain movie and I don't like it, I don't think it's negative to not like something. No, I think it's okay. I think it's it's I guess that's where I'm going. The 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 short version of this. I don't think it's negative to not like something. I think when you get angry about it or when you say th- something sucks, like this is terrible. I think when you take it personal is when it becomes an issue. Yeah, uh, which happens with yeah. a lot of movies. I, I, um, to be to be honest, and allow me just to to reiterate, I'm trying to come at this from a place of I I want to understand. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, like, I, yeah, it's like I said before. That's it's not a dig on anyone if you like or don't like something. Art is always subjective, mm. uh, and and there's a lot of movies that I like that a lot of people aren't going to like, and there's you know there's very popular movies that I don't really care for. Uh, it's just a matter of you know everybody is coming from their own point of view. So like uh, that's you know, why I want I, us to be able to have the discussion of like you talking about it doesn't work. I don't think you should shy away from the fact that it didn't work for you or that you don't like. Right. It. I'd like to know more about think, what you didn't like. What I think that's the distinction you. that you you should always make when you're talking about film or music or anything is not that when you say like you can say something doesn't work but you're you're and and i'm not saying you said this you didn't say this but people do say like oh this this doesn't work or this is bad or you're saying that as as if that encompasses everyone's opinion what you're really saying is this doesn't work for me for me right right there's an amount of hubris that you have sometimes the way you talk about something it's just like this is uh definitively bad like who are you like you know or that's right. at least how i try to view it for myself is like who right. am i to say this is bad maybe this is somebody's favorite shit yeah you know? yeah and yeah so. and and this movie is you know and all of his movies are going to be probably some of the most divisive films that we've talked about on this podcast so far but i think they are important pieces of art that need to be discussed uh that doesn't mean that you that doesn't mean that you're required to like them <laughs> you're not um, I mean, I think it would be boring if everyone liked all the same things all the time. I, I but, but I am curious, what is it about this that doesn't work for you? I, I think some of the characterization of and a lot and a lot of the relationships were just kind of a that it was a little it was a little muddy. Maybe I I wanted something a little more concrete. And I mean, I was able to you know decipher like okay she clearly you know endured a rape that's what they're you know the breaking of the eggs and the whole mm-hmm. thing there at the beginning i got that and and you know looking at the two of them are traveling through you know this land and you know again but then they encounter certain things and certain individuals where i was just kind of like okay who is this in in the grand scheme of things why why are they approaching them it was just there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of very vague i think one of the reviews gary read was just kind of like this really could have been summed up in about 15 minutes 
And I, that's, I, I can't say I disagree with that. That seem, it seems to me that the overall, and again, I know he's not concerned with plot, but the, the narrative that he wanted to convey could have been a little more concise, could have been a little more definitive to convey a more cohesive thought to me. Um, and I, and I guess that, that kind of permeated throughout. So it was a little, it was a little muddy for me throughout. I mean, I'd, you know, I, I did like you now I didn't take a gummy, but I did. I, I was drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I was drunk. I was drunk enough that I could feel it, but still be able to pay attention to the movie. And I did put my phone down. Um, so I did take your advice. Uh, but yeah, as I was watching, it was just kind of like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm loosely following along with what they're trying to convey, I I think. And it just, it wasn't super, it, it just didn't seem to solidify for me in terms of, okay, what's the point? Like there was a lot of when you get there, you know, when you get there, there'll be, you know, golden, what, I, f- I forget the quote, you'll have to forgive me, but. Um, oh, about tar? A, like what's going to be in tar? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole yeah, bunch of shit. There's a whole list. Yeah, yeah there's, <laughs> there's a whole a... big thing. And I was just kind of like, okay, is that metaphorical or are you speaking, are we talking literally or. Or is he on drugs? Yeah. Or is it, <laughs> or is it you know, again, I didn't really. It just it, and I'm just really struggling because I I do want to I do want to understand what he was saying. So so again, when I hear things like it's based on a play that he kind of remembers, like really you directed this play. First of all, you don't remember more than that, and secondly, why not just get the play? I think <laughs> it kind of works in that way. For that me. way about it, yeah, just I because it, it makes it his own instead of yeah. like he's copied. He's because he doesn't a screenplay exactly. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, what did you think, Gary? This was your first time seeing this. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of like this because I, I think I fall in between you guys. Like I, I think uh, I, I often or not often, but this is the first time where the whole series has made me question because I buy all these DVDs and I try to get really good versions with lots of features. Uh, and I justify it because I need them to research for Cinema Shock. And uh, this would, this series made me be like, am I going to regret buying all these movies? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you, you, you thought that before having ever seen any of these movies. But I thought it before having ever seen any. And, 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 I, and I was just like, I know this guy's going to be weird. Justin kind of set us up. So you did privacy for a lot of it. But whatever happened, when I watched the movie, I never once felt lost. Like I never felt like I don't get him. Um, so I felt kind of good about that. And I don't know if it's just a different place I'm at in my life or whatever. Uh, but it's like I I um I some somehow like right at the beginning, I I went into it watching it more as a ballet than a action movie you know what i mean like it was just like i'm I'm going because it's always weird like cinema could be anything you want it to be and so you have to start to expect that like through what we're watching it's like sometimes they're going to be horror sometimes they're going to be action there's all the basic genres you're used to and then some people are going to get really artsy 
with it and to yeah. see what they could bring to it. I transitioned from like ballet, like part of the way through, I think you're probably around the time the bowling balls were getting swung down the hill or something. I started being like, man, this is even maybe not so much ballet. It is like a painting, like a dolly painting or something. Yeah. Like it's just a weird way of looking at this. This is a, uh, I don't know. I was with it. I was with it the whole time. And, and, and again, I have the luxury of, I've watched the commentary track now too, and hearing him talk about it more, which improved my, uh, uh, appreciation of everything that was happening. So um, I think it's good. I am not regretting having the movie. I like having the movie. Is it something I'm going to watch all the time? No. Is it, you know, but I think it's worth seeing. And I yeah. think uh, it's, and I, it, I get it. It's going to be some people shit and not some people shit. And mm -hmm. uh, for me, I don't think, I think I saw on Letterboxd, Justin gave it like five stars or maybe four. I think gave uh, it four this, this most I, recent time, yeah. I might go like a less star, a less a half a star or something in there. I, I would go less than four, I think. But that four to, was my like third watch through, though. The previous to that, it was lower. Yeah, and it's not because I hated anything in it. I think I understand it all now, and I and I... I don't know. I, I appreciate it. I, I think it's yeah. a good movie. I just, uh, I don't, you know, it's just, that it's also when I go to a movie, like it's not going to be my first, like, right. Choice, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Well, so in, in one of his, um, Alejandro Jodorowsky has written numerous autobiographies, some of them fictionalized and, or partially fictionalized or whatever. <laughs> but in one of his later ones, it's called Endless Poetry. Jodorowsky tells a story where he reveals that as a child, his father had wanted him to be a doctor. Uh, so he was sent to visit his uncle who worked at a medical school and he was sent to uh, this school to study the corpses in, in the morgue that were the ones that were like being dissected by the medical students to like learn. Uh, but Jodorowsky had no intention of, he, he had no desire to be a doctor at all. Uh, so when he saw these dead bodies, he only saw them from kind of a, an aesthetic standpoint. Uh, and he tells the story how one day uh, he saw in, in this morgue an entire family like laid out in stretchers. And they were in a state of like putrefaction where they were starting to kind of turn and colors and things. And he was kind of struck by what he describes as the beauty of the colors on their bodies. He's like, I've never seen such shades of green and purple and red. And for him, this was kind of a moment of transcendence. Uh, and this blend of transcendence and morbidity could be seen as kind of the key, the the almost the Rosetta Stone for Jodorowsky as an artist. He wanted to find beauty among violence and filth and cruelty. So the theater of cruelty, and thus the cinema of cruelty, what we're calling the series, it, it aimed to create works that would provoke the senses of the audience. And Jodorowsky, in making this movie... Like I said before, he didn't care if the audience liked the film. He didn't care if the audience was entertained by the film. He only cared that it made them feel something, even if that feeling was revulsion. And so to achieve this, he does lean a lot into the theatrical aesthetics of the panic movement. Um I mean, and not just visually, like the sound, I think the sound design on this movie is incredible. Like the, the, you've got this deafening sound of mosquitoes and like bestial screams and, and uh, like when the, when you've got the naked bathers in, in the mud, there's like this really loud sound of like a pounding heartbeat. And it's all, uh, 
mixed to where it's very, very loud and it's like very uh, like sonically assaulting on the audience. Uh, and then you've got, you know, visually it assaults you as well. Some of the scenes we've talked about, like lease giving birth to pigs or the congregation surrounding a coffin and and they've all they, their scissors are making these like really loud snippy sounds as they cut the flesh away from from lease to to eat her you know uh now narratively a lot of that stuff doesn't mean anything maybe to Jodorowsky maybe some of it means nothing at all um I mean like Gary you know listen to that commentary and he explains a lot of that stuff, but this is also him recording a commentary 40, 50 years after the movie was made. Was that his intention at the time, or is he just full of shit? You know, it's hard to tell with him sometimes. But I don't think that whether that those images mean something specific or not, they add to the overall experience of watching the movie and the overall feeling that he's trying to evoke from the viewer. There are songwriters like this, you know, there's there's yeah. people that 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 write songs that are just so much poetry mm -hmm. that you're like, what is this guy thinking? And there's like, I don't know, Hank Williams. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone like... has different goals, you know. Yeah. Uh, another scene in this that I think uh, I think we've mentioned it a couple of times because it's one of the kind of more I don't know. It's a hard it's a hard to watch scene, but it's a one, still one of the more famous scenes from the movie is that that really I think showcases the aesthetics of Panic is the flashback where Lise is a young girl and she's in the theater watching the puppeteer that's played by Jodorowsky, and the puppeteer lures her backstage where she is seemingly raped by a room full of men. Now we don't see anything. We don't see the rape. Instead, Jodorowsky portrays it by showing hands holding eggs and squeezing them until they burst open. And when it, when you when they burst, you hear the sound of like firecrackers or something. It's kind of what it sounds like to me. And and you hear Lise scream during that moment. You hear firecrackers and a scream while these eggs are being broken. Now it's a it's a an aggressive and highly disturbing image. And it's not because of what we see, because we don't really see anything that should be that disturbing. But he takes like the context, the images we do see, and the sounds that we hear to evoke a feeling. And it's, it's how you feel that makes you feel disturbed during that scene. Now, as far as like their journey to Tar, you know, th there's a couple of ways to look at that. I think uh, either the journey is meaningless because they never reach Tar. And when the movie ends, they're, they're, they never make it even though that's what the whole movie's about, is them trying to find this mythical city where everything is going to be okay. But you could also see it as that the meaning is found in the journey itself. The narrator at the beginning of the movie says, um, if you know where to look for it, you will find it. Something along those lines, I think. Uh, but it's also clear that Fondo and Lise have no idea where to start looking. <laughs> like They come across all sorts of obstacles and strange people, but no nothing ever really signifies that they're going in the right direction. Uh, and it's very disorienting, both for the audience and for the characters themselves. Uh, and all of these people they're searching for, a lot of them are also seem they seem to be looking for tar, but nobody seems to have found it. Uh, so the way you can, when you're watching the movie, it's like, does Jodorowsky adequately convey all of this stuff in the film i mean not really i mean it's there but you have to dig for it uh which is why anytime if somebody said they watched this movie and they didn't get it i understand because it it takes some work it takes a lot of work on your part and i don't think that i really got it until i'd watched it a couple of times uh to me it kind of feels like almost like a student film 
like if, if I were, if I had seen El Topo and I'd seen the Holy Mountain and then I went back and watched this and they were like, this is the movie that Jodorowsky made in film school or something th- that would make sense to me. Uh, it's like a guy who we, we know where he's going to go, but he hasn't quite learned how to use the tools at his disposal. You can see the seeds of what he would later create, but his vision for this movie feels a little more unformed. Um, but it also makes it feel more akin to the avant-garde theater where he started. I think this feels much more like uh, a theater piece. It definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. But, but despite the fact that it's not like a fully formed work or like this is still Jodorowsky learning to be a filmmaker. I still kind of love this movie. Uh, and I don't think it's as well formed as his later work, but it is an absolutely fascinating film. And I didn't love it the first time I watched it. I thought it was when I watched it the first time I, I was just kind of like, yeah, this is looks like a Jodorowsky movie, but he doesn't quite know how to make movies yet. It's kind of like how I felt about it. I didn't hate it, but I was like, uh, yeah, okay. I'm glad I watched that. I appreciate it, but it's not a movie that I like love. Um, I don't even think the second time I, I loved it. I, I liked it a lot more, but by the third time, something about it, it like really clicked with me. And maybe it's because I had already started doing a little bit of research by the time I watched it that time. Cause I watched it twice leading up to this. I had seen it previously one time before a few years ago, but um, I think by the third time, you know, I started to kind of grasp what, Jodorowsky was aiming for and it and it started to work for me a little bit more for me like when I was watching it like uh and, and it could be from like like I mentioned with the 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 line he used about print the legend and all that stuff I, I've been reading this like uh, several different philosophy things I've just been kind of interested in following some newsletters and uh just how to relate them to your regular life and you know like old stuff and anyway my point here being that immediately I kind of got part of it. Just there are lines in this movie that I think still are meaningless to me that sound like somebody just making some shit up. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, one of the things I took that I really liked from it at the beginning was like when he's talking to his father and like the father is, it's like the, when he's a kid and, uh, and I actually copied down, but the father's like, you know, like, uh, let's play. Okay, I'm a famous pianist. And then he's like, well, if you're a famous pianist and I cut off your arm, uh, then what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'll become a famous painter. And he's like, well, I cut off the other one. Then what are you going to do? Well, I'll become a famous dancer. Well, then I'll cut off your legs. Then what? Well, I'll become a singer. And he said, oh, well, I'll cut off your head. Then what? Well, when I'm dead, my skin will be a drum. Well, what if I burn the drum? Then I'll become a cloud and I'll take on any shape. And the cloud dissolves. What then? Well, I'll become rain and produce harvest of uh, produce a harvest of wars or something. And then anyway, the point being is like his father's like, it feels like the father's trying to teach him this lesson about adapting and like overcoming like these struggles that things are going to happen in your life. And that, that's immediately like what I gathered from it. It was like this yeah. kind of Zen uh, teaching. And then it's like the whole movie Fondo is a guy who's just like the world granted is beating him senseless, but mm-hmm. it's him fighting back against it except instead of accepting this lesson that it seems like at the beginning his father was trying to teach him and even when he's yeah. got things in front of him like lease or whatever that they're still just like not ever grasping anything outside of himself or like you know and he's fucking himself over just by how much he's like pushing back against everything else going on in the world i don't know i loved that concept of it yeah that's a, um, that's a good way to look at it i think and uh but so so there was there was that stuff 
there's still stuff in it that I'm like, what the fuck was the point of that? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of that. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of that. Uh, When we were planning this series, um, I actually almost skipped this film. I wasn't going to do this film. I was going to start with El Topo because this is, uh, I think I mentioned this in our bonus episode where we we said we were going to do this, but this is going to be the launch of like a, I guess you'd call it like a maxi series uh, about midnight movies uh, where we're going to do multiple series in a row about filmmakers who were part of that midnight movies movement. Uh, and since El Topo was the first midnight movie, I figured, hey, that's a good starting point. And, and plus, since I had already seen this one previously, I kind of knew that it was going to be more difficult than even some of uh, Jodorowsky's other films, even though his other films aren't like a, they're not a walk in the park, but uh, they're more accessible than this one. And I was kind of afraid of alienating our listeners or making you guys hate me for choosing <laughs> Jodorowsky. But, and you might not even remember this, Gary, because it was several months ago. You actually convinced me to start with this movie with Fondo, Elise. Hot um, You're on and, shit list now, pal. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure what prompted you to do that, but I'm glad that we did make that decision because even though this movie is more difficult, um, it's also incredibly important, I think, to understanding him as a filmmaker because Fondo and Lease really sets the stage for, I mean, the career of one of the most fascinating cult filmmakers that we'll ever discuss on this show. Uh, like he's a truly fascinating person. So uh, I, I don't know so, how this is for Zen either, but uh, I don't know why I decided that it just, maybe it was probably to be completionist about the whole thing, but the uh, I'm glad it happened and I'm glad I've seen this and it made me, it gave us a chance to really learn more about him than we might've, otherwise and uh and so i i kind of feel like i'm gonna i have as of this recording not yet seen el topo but i feel like i'm going to approach it maybe in the exact right way i should approach it right having having seen this yeah so well then that that um brings up my next point then what are your your thoughts on this is a question for both of you what are your thoughts on jodorowsky going forward now that you've had your first taste of his uh his filmmaking style i think that there's still you know i mentioned hubris earlier you could still be very zen but then sort of get like a a little bit of hubris about that too i feel like like he uh he definitely uh i feel like he's overall probably a good dude but there's still some parts about him that are like you're very confident in everything you think you know and uh you know that and your art and you i don't know there's still interviews i see with him and i'm like wow he is not to be swayed he is not the guy that's approaching approaching anything with a i'm not sure mentality and like i'm willing to learn like he seems like he's very like i know what i'm doing (laughs) i mean for me i think (sighs) you you learn so much you learn so much after your first attempt so um I'm looking at this as, I mean, and again, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound negative, but it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to the narrative and the presentation and the technique and all aspects of the elements that comprise film being elevated elevated to that next level based on lessons he learned with this one. So well, I, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to, to the next one. one I would say going forward to not, not think that he's going to be any more straightforward with his narrative. Cause he does not get more straightforward with it. I, I will. I will. I will <laughs> say this. I've been about warned. 
one thing that he's got, he definitely has very early on. And even if it meant him putting uh, his cameraman on a leash and dragging him through the mud or something, uh, he's got a visual thing going. That oh, yeah. Already... Which is going to be very apparent in the next couple of movies. So. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that evolve because he seems to already have that nailed down. And if it's anything like, a, I don't know, a David Lynch, uh, like a there you could at least count on you're gonna see something that you won't forget you've seen absolutely <laughs> yeah for sure uh so I, I guess this is a good point to get into our further viewing segment this is a kind of a difficult one because this is such a singular movie i think all of his are going to be kind of difficult to do further viewing on but what would you pair with fondo and lease as a uh, as a double feature I'll uh, I'll jump in there real quick and just go ahead and say, uh, since I just said David Lynch, I mean, a, a racer head was like the immediate thing I thought of. No, I mean, obviously the black and white things working for it there, but uh, also just the weirdness. And it was another one of those. It's just like one of my ones that I think the first time I saw it, I was just like, what the fuck is this shit? And then <laughs> the more I learned about it, the more I appreciated it. Just uh, the, the style they were going for. My mm-hmm. other one would be Mother uh aronofsky i yeah, feel like okay. i for some reason it felt like mother to me and yeah some, i got i got a lot, it, of, I got a lot that of symbolism yeah. yeah 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 i mean eraserhead was one of my like thoughts because it, it almost feels obvious be, even though the the two films could not be more different uh except from except for the black and white you know gritty gr- uh photography but um but also it's the first like vision of a of a visionary filmmaker you know and, and those were i think those and speaking of aronofsky i think you could throw pie in there yeah i can see his, that. his first film yeah for sure what about you todd uh well again you know uh justin pointed out and it's not a secret i do tend to focus on the narrative i focus on the story overall so i was thinking about okay we got two lovers uh there is a journey fantastical setting some surrealist imagery so from natural 19- born killers <laughs> I was trying to think of a rando one to throw in there. That was a good one. Uh 1998, adapted by uh Ron Bass from the novel of the same name by Richard Matheson, directed by Vincent Ward, it won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects, features Warner Herzog, one of the Captain Americas, an actress not only from TNG but Deep Space Nine. And the three-eyed raven. Uh, are you asking us what that is? Yeah. Wait, I'm uh, trying to picture that's, it in uh, my what head. dreams may come. That is. That's what <laughs> dreams may come. I thought I don't know, I don't know which Captain America's in it, but uh that would be Matt Salinger. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, oh. I just I, you know, it's kind of trippy, and um, you know, you got some you got these lovers that you know have uh, again it's these movies could not be more different, but, um, but at their base core elements, there's some very strong feelings between this couple and, you know, there's, uh, some tragedy, some heartbreak, uh, between them. And, and we see some really uh, fantastic things in this, in this wild setting. And I was just, it, it was the first thing to come to mind in looking at the base elements of the narrative, as it is presented in Fando Elias. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, that that's a uh, out there choice, but I yeah. see, I see where you're coming from with it. You know, 
He does say, actually, I wasn't even thinking of this when I mentioned sort of a, a similar thing earlier about my interpretation of it, but um, he does at one point, he had the quote, after the illusion of the soul is destroyed, these two are the only thing they have. Hmm. And uh, talking about each other. And uh, I liked I liked that statement during the the commentary i remember yeah. but uh it just i don't know it's 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 really cool like it, it's it you can see I, I i look forward to seeing him evolve visually definitely because he does feel like he's almost a painter with the oh, yeah. way that that he's making film oh it, it it gets uh his visuals are absolutely incredible moving forward so for many years fondo and lease was considered kind of a lost film uh unseen I remember it barely got a release in New York, and that was really the only release it got in the U.S., I believe. Um, and once Jodorowsky started kind of rising as a cult figure, this mysterious debut feature was something that was, was kind of whispered about in film circles. Uh, it, it was actually rumored uh, for a while, for years, that this first film that Jodorowsky had made had actually been documentary footage of the massacre in Mexico City, which he had been at. After the release of Fondo and Lease, Jodorowsky met a Zen Buddhist monk named Ijo Takada. And Alejandro actually became a spiritual disciple of his, uh, spreading the message of transcendental meditation and Zen Buddhism. Just like Andy Kaufman. Just like David Lynch. (laughs) David Lynch is big into transcendental meditation. Mm. And this influence, though, uh, the influence of Zen Buddhism and transcendental meditation uh, was going to be readily apparent in the rest of his work. Uh, his his work gets um, increasingly more spiritual from here on out, uh, beginning with his next film, which would show the influence of everything in Jodorowsky's life thus far, from mime to the panic movement to Zen. And it's often considered his finest work. Uh, it's certainly his most impactful work. That film will be the subject of our next episode, part two of our series on uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, So next time on Cinema Shock, we will finally be discussing the infamous El Topo. Uh, Pretty easy to find out there if you want to stream it. Watch it along with us, as always. There's 100% like moments where he mentions Buddhism in his commentary. He could be relating these things in retro or you know like doing it in retrospect or whatever so yeah. even if unknowingly i guess it's there but uh, a lot of the stuff in the cemetery i know was a part of that he was talking about like death being the only time you're innocent like a child like going yeah back he, he's very i mean we'll discuss it as we discuss his life going forward but he he gets very into like mysticism esoteric movements uh, he's very into tarot. He he's written entire books on tarot. He's he's and saw some that of the years, I was interested. I was like, yeah. I don't in some of that. the years where he was not making movies, because there was a pretty big gap where he wasn't making any movies, uh, like a couple of decades uh, where he wasn't making movies. He uh, he was doing in addition to doing like comic books and stuff. He was doing tarot readings for people. I was going to say uh, I don't and, know why why I would have the thought that Alejandro Jodorowsky might make me understand tarot better than anyone else. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I've read some excerpts and I am no closer to understanding yeah, it than I was, I, was say, I feel like he would probably push me <laughs> further away. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it, if you want to read more about that stuff though, you can read, uh, you know, the, uh, the seven lives of Alejandro Jodorowsky, which was put out by humanoids, which is a um, French publishing company that publishes heavy metal heavy metal magazine and which is where he got his start in comics 
was on heavy metal. So mm-hmm. speaking uh, they, of heavy metal, can I just say real quick, this is a thought I had earlier and I meant to mention it that uh, I was having a conversation. I cannot remember with who, but the important thing is, is that we were talking about not understanding something and having to dig deeper in art. And uh, somewhere along the way, the discussion went to heavy metal music. And the person was talking about like, I can't stand metal or like, especially like screaming metal and, Mm. uh, and that sort of thing. And like, I'll never get that one and yada, yada, yada. But I was like, Man, you know what's weird is I remember my buddy, uh, uh, he used to be in a metal band, and I remember he used to listen to metal all the time, and I was never super into it. And I remember being like, how do you even understand what they're saying? Like, Because I don't even get it half the time. And I know we've got some listeners who love metal, but he was saying that he always loved getting like a new album and then having to sit down with like the lyrics and like read the lyrics like as mm-hmm. he's listening to the music and he made mm. it feel like he felt like he appreciated it even more yeah afterwards and i was like shit i've never even thought about it that way and i was explaining that to this person i was like maybe they're actually even closer to the music than like a normal pop song because they're yeah. like you know they're, they're really like digging themselves into, into them mm-hmm. yeah giving it their full attention and yeah but anyway, so like I, I think I feel like that could happen with with these films sometimes, and you oh, know, yeah. like some people don't want to explain their stuff, but when you've got somebody like Jodorowsky who was willing to like walk you through it and like basically give you the lyric sheet to the movie, it's just kind of interesting. You can I don't know. I feel like I appreciate it even more than I would have otherwise. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting take on that. But you're right. Uh, I guess that's all we got for this episode, guys. So you guys want to let the listeners know where you can be found uh, across social media and the internet? Yeah. I am at, this is Gary Horn on all the socials. Uh, The wrestling company I mentioned earlier is at NWA. Uh, We'll be at Knoxville. Uh, Not by the time you hear this. Don't worry about that one. Tampa, February the 11th. You can check that out. Or if you're in Mexico, you could go to uh, a big event. It's like a Smashing Pumpkins World as a Vampire Tour. It's on March the 4th. Nice. And, uh, there's a lot of bands there, so that's going to be a huge. Festival. Are you going to be there for that? I don't think I'm actually going to go anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I think <laughs> I'm going to skip that one. It's just a, it's a lot for like yeah. a day. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> go so, to Mexico for a day and come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a lot. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, the check out all those things at TIPW shows my personal wrestling podcast. You can check that out. But that's it. That's all I got. Uh, if you're in our area, I'll be performing my first headlining stand-up comedy gig at Voodoo Brewing in Fountain Inn, South Carolina, on February 25th. Oh, the show nice. starts at 7 p.m. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll go to that, Todd. You gotta, I gotta remember that. I gotta put that oh, in my cool. calendar. I've yeah, always wanted to go to the place, anyway. So. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. We're gonna have a good time. There's a bunch of good people on the show. Uh, if you like Star Trek, I will be having some hosting duties for the Shuttle Pod Show show live in Los Angeles, California, February 10th through. 12th information is available at treks and trekkers on instagram i will also be hosting trek fest in riverside iowa june 22nd through the 24th i'm also working my way through the entire star trek franchise in chronological order on my show computer resume podcast available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the social media at computer resume and i'm at mr todd a davis on facebook twitter instagram letterboxd and dnd beyond as long as they behave themselves 
Uh, yeah, Todd's killing it in the Star Trek uh, podcast world. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, also, I love. Really. <laughs> I love that you still mention Letterbox, even though you have not updated it in three I, years. I haven't touched it in why, so long. Why even mention it? What's the point? We also have that a Discord is, yeah. that I know that Todd's been directly added in the well, Discord. <laughs> like, yeah. We we have specifically intentionally like at mentioned Todd in the Discord. Really? Just to, just to prove that he would not respond to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh, i have well, to go look <laughs> well i am at justin underscore bishop i'm on instagram uh twitter letterbox uh you can also find and i do use my letterbox gary does too gary you use your letterbox a good bit now yeah i don't i've been bad about rating i'm gonna go back and uh but you're still logging so that's but I, but I, I log everything yeah. yeah i've been watching the twilight series i don't know if you know oh, fun well c- congrats uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can find the show i've, I've been ro- watching the rocky series getting ready nice. for creed three you know Ooh. so anyway you can find the show at cinema underscore shock on instagram and twitter we're also on facebook as gary mentioned we're on discord you can find all of that uh all the links to those on uh, on our website cinemashock.net you can also find links to our merch by cinema shock t-shirt or sticker or whatever else you might want on there uh as always like rate and review share us with all your movie loving friends if you've got somebody that's into super weird cult movies like el topo like we're talking about next week send them this series and uh let us know what you think until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other Billy the Mime has the keys. <laughs> Billy the Mime. Yeah. Who's Billy the Mime? It's a he's a mime. That's the you said you guys can't name another mime. Billy the Mime. <laughs>